Deck the halls with orcs and X-Wings. Brian, what are you doing? Oh, well, since it's December, I'm uh, putting up our official digital noise Christmas tree. That's great and all, but why aren't you putting up any decorations in the middle section of the tree? They were obstructing. <sighs> obstructing what? This! Is that a... Yep, 42-inch 1080p LCD viewing screen that comes right out of the mother Christmas tree. Wow. I worry that I may have created a monster. It also dispenses beer. Deck the halls with ales and lagers. Fa -la 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 -la. Files because the Blue Crew is here to help you check it twice for omissions. It's the first December episode of Digital Noise right here on oneofus.net. Hooray! Seasonal greetings and all that. Yes, cheer. Woo! Happiness. my mold wine, goddammit? <laughs> <laughs> I am your ho-ho host, Brian Salisbury, and I am joined by the Dark Elves of the North Pole, Christopher Lawrence Cox. That would be drow, appropriately. Yes, it would be drow. And Luke Mullen. Hey, that's me. Luke, will you play Santa at the One of Us Company Christmas party? Only if you sit in my lap. Yay! Okay. So, that's a plan. I'm retiring from digital noise as of five <laughs> seconds ago. <laughs> I will buy you out for one copy of The French Connection on VHS. <laughs> I believe that's how much our stock is worth currently. Something like that, yes. I do want to remind you guys that Digital Noise, just like all of our content here at oneofus.net, is available on iTunes. Just search One of Us in the podcast section. While you're there, why not give us a five-star rating and leave a review? Yeah, why not? Have you ever asked yourself, why haven't I done that? And then realized, oh my god, I'm a terrible person. I haven't done that. I, I... That's what we're trying to make you feel right now. That I... would explain all the bodies in the backyard. Yes, that that's it. Because you didn't give us a nice review. Mm -hmm. Santa's watching. I'm, that's all I'm going to say. Or Kegel the Elf will let him know. Did you say Kegel the Elf? Kegel the Elf. Kegel the Elf. That's the Elf on the Shelf. The, the Elf on the, the Shelf. The Elf that does vag vaginal exercises. We are also available on Twitter. Uh, it's just... weird to me that Chris doesn't watch The League. The League. Oh, Kegel I the do. Elf. I can't remember all the details. <laughs> it's weird to me that Chris doesn't remember things. <laughs> Who are you again? Exactly. <laughs> He's very old. Uh, we're also available on Twitter. This show is at DigiNoiseCast. We're available on Facebook. This show specifically is Facebook.com slash us. And we have a Tumblr account now. Hooray for Tumblr! That's a thing. That is a thing. We will post uh, all of our news and articles, as well as funny photos and videos. And come contest time, there will be some very interesting things that you will want to check out. <laughs> I love it when you get diabolical. I, I hate know. it. One of us <laughs> net, or I'm sorry, one of us net dot com for that. Uh yeah. So what else do we got here? It is the spirit. No. Let's try that again. In the spirit of giving of the season and words, don't forget that you can become a subscriber. You can give $1 to $25 every month, which you can cancel at any time, or you can just make a one-time donation. That's how we keep the lights on. It's located right there in the sidebar if you choose to do that. We would greatly appreciate it. As would we appreciate if you're going to buy things on Amazon this season, and let's face it, why wouldn't you? Yeah, you're going to, let's face it. It's, it's the easiest thing in the world, but please consider coming to our site first and following our links to get there. If you get there from here, anything you buy, doesn't even have to be the item that we're featuring, 
Anything you buy will support the site. We get a kickback. It's like a whole mob thing. You don't want to know the details. We get paid under the table in like brown paper bags. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, Amazon just sends those new drones directly to our house. Yes. <laughs> and and now all the other websites that are also in Texas have to play, pay a protection fee to us or we come beat them up. Yeah. 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 It's very odd that they have to pay protection, even though we are the least threatening people in Austin. But still, we, we get the job I done. I bring the cat. <laughs> oh, monkey is terrifying. Absolutely. Well, it is the season to bring people together, and we do so by tearing off the tinsel and wrapping paper and ripping open... The Letterbox. You've got mail. Yes, Torgo, thank you. The Letterbox. We have a couple of great questions here. The first comes from Michael, call me Ishmael McCall, who says, Have you ever wanted to take on a project, build your own movie prop? If so, what would it be? If not, well, I guess you will skip this question. Have a great show. <laughs> Clearly, I did not skip this question. You know, it's funny. I'm not the craftiest guy, like building stuff guy in the world, to mm -hmm. be sure. But every once in a while, you get that wild hair. You're like, I bet that would be easy. And, uh, you know, I was watching a lot of Doctor Who lately, and there's been a lot of Cyberman episodes for some reason that clustered up. And I was like, wow, those old Cyberman outfits? I could totally make one of those for like 15 minutes. And then I was like, no, that sounds like way too much work. <laughs> <laughs> Good, helpful. <laughs> Jeez, man. I think I would want to build, if I had the metallurgy skills, I would want to build my own glaive. Yeah. I, I would, you know, from Krull. I mean, I think, and use it correctly. Thank you very much, Krull. For God's sake. Can't even throw it correctly. Don't you have to, in, like, invent some sort of, like power fusion drive or something that would make it boomerang like that since it probably from its natural shape would not do that make it boomerang into complete failure as yeah, it did and, in crawl and be like laser tipped or whatever it is <laughs> yes okay yes it would just have these giant blades and there would be lasers and anyway I, i'd say the best closest i get to this being a real thing is i have been wanted to take on a project that involved me paying someone else to build a prop from <laughs> yeah <laughs> Yeah, Ashley like Moreno always, maybe from Minecraft. I always uh, talk Minecraft. about the, uh, the the Prince of Darkness like container. Yes, it's like oh, I'd love to pay somebody to b build one of those for me, where it swirls around and everything. Like oh, that'd be awesome. See, I wish I was crafty enough to do it. I would love to like sit and spend the time and have like the project out in the garage that slowly gets completed in various stages. You over have that. Of you months. built how in our living room? You built the the devious robot from 2001: A Space Odyssey. In our home entertainment center. Brian's still not made his peace with the fact that I bought an Xbox One. It's not just the Xbox there. One. It's the HTPC, which we have dubbed Monster Box, that Luke built completely. That scares me as well. Well, that's just a computer. I don't know mm -hmm. why you're afraid of that. Yeah, but. Hal was just a computer. That's all I'm saying. Yes, well. But <laughs> if I were much more crafty than I am, there are... Many instructions that can be found online to build your own life-size R2-D2. Ah, uh, yes. In mm. fact, I can introduce you to somebody and right down the street who's built his own. I would love to do that. Yeah. That would be a lot of fun. Yeah. And and we actually, uh, Jason Murphy and I, we, we share an office. We were talking about buying this globe bar. Like, you'd see it, like, for example, in uh, Inglorious Bastards, you saw one where, you know, Mike Myers opens up this globe and there's, there's alcohol in it. But we want to have somebody paint the outside to look like the Death Star. So we would actually have cool. a Death Star bar. Nice. The Death I, Bar. When I first moved here, I used to know a guy who made, like, real replicas of weapons from sci-fi stuff so that they were, like, actual metal and usable. Because when you buy them anywhere else, they're, like, 
you know, usually not very, they're not usable. Yeah, really. per Comic-Con's instructions, they yeah, can't be. Exactly. But this guy was building, like, replicas of famous swords and weapons, and he had a batlech, the Klingon, that sort of rounded blade. Oh, thing yeah, with yeah. The wrappings, and he usually sold for, like, a grand. He's like, I'll let you have for 300. And I was like, oh, I'm 22, and I don't make any money. It might as well be 30,000. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. When you're that poor, it just it just kind of exists that way. Our next question comes from Tom Bonner, who asks, what is your, we had to have this question in, at some point this yeah. month, so I'm just getting out of the way early. What is your go-to holiday film? It's Die Hard. Let's move on. <laughs> <laughs> Die Hard is definitely in our rotation. In fact, Luke and I, uh, we put up the, the Christmas tree the day after Thanksgiving, and we watched um, Elf. We watched Elf. Which, and It's a Wonderful Life. And It's a Wonderful Life, which actually, It's a Wonderful Life has not been in the rotation for a long time because growing up, I had to watch that movie every single year and I kind of got tired of it. But uh, it's a pretty remarkable movie, all things being Thank equal. Thank God. Yeah. Neither one of those are in my rotation, strangely enough. Well, I tend to do a thing where I, because I have so many TV box sets that I'll pull out like and go through lists of like what the best Christmas episodes of all time were, various shows, and just marathon like a whole set of like best ever Christmas episodes. We did that's, go through most of the Friends Thanksgiving episodes the day before. That's true. So. That's, and we'll probably do the same with the Friends Christmas episodes. But our normal rotation are things like Die Hard and Home Alone, and Kiss Kiss Bang Bang has worked its Kiss way Kiss in there. Kiss Kiss Bang Bang is good. Rare we exports. Did, we did watch Lethal Weapon. Le we did watch Lethal Weapon the day after Thanksgiving, because I felt like things were a little too happy. The so. third Harold and Kumar film. <laughs> Dude, a very <laughs> Harold and Kumar Christmas is an amazing Christmas film. It and is. if you're not giving it a shot because you don't care for the other two films, please give it a shot. I, I Speaking of someone who actually doesn't care for the other two films, I was like, eh. They're okay. they're not worse than ever, but they're eh. The third one fucking floored me. The I third one is amazing. Yeah. If if for no other reason than Waffle Wafflebot. Yeah. I Hooray. love Wafflebot. See, I would like someone to build Build a Wafflebot. Get K and B on the phone. We will make this happen. <laughs> That'd be fantastic. Well, thanks for your questions, guys. We're gonna stuff that letterbox back under the tree for another week and get into the reviews. Once again, everything we talk about, there will be a link to Amazon. If you'd like to buy it, go ahead and get there from our link so that we make a small cut of that profit. Don't forget, or we will find you. We will. <laughs> and we will force you to pay protection, apparently. We're going to start this week with Red 2. Electric Redaloo. Electric Redaloo. Oh, I didn't know. I, you have the same disease I have that you can't say I can't help it. To and not have to just desperately fight against saying Electric Boogaloo. Right I had to afterwards. chew on my tongue once to keep from saying it. You know... And even then it came out... I wasn't a fan of the original Red. I know it did very well, and a lot of people really liked it, except for uh, uh, Martin, who hated it so badly he was shaking. Oh, Martin. <laughs> I, was, I was like, really? There's nothing in it that's hate-worthy. For whatever reason, it just he just despised that movie. And I was like, I didn't like it at all either, but come on, what are you so mad about? Uh, apparently he didn't like Red too much better. But you know, I can't imagine that he would. I yeah, just don't see anything hate or vitriol. Red really. 2's not any better than Red is, but it's not really a hell of a lot worse either. I mean, well, I'll, I'll disagree there, but continue with well, your story. I, I, like I said, I didn't really care for almost anything in Red 1, and Red 2 suffers from the same problems I had with Red 1, which is that there's such sloppy storytelling and filmmaking going on here. There's just continuity errors everywhere. There's just a, a lack of caring about whether or not the shots are put together correctly. I mean, uh, you know, it's hard to say this without spoiling the ending, but basically there's a sequence 
where the camera is on someone the entire time and the plot would require them to open a case with clasps, remove a very heavy device from it, turn around backwards, open another panel, put it inside that panel, close that panel and reclose the case with glass. We see him first camera shot the whole time. There, You can't do that with the back of your foot. Okay? Mm. You can't do it. That's a problem. I, and this movie is it, filled with shit like that. You're like, what in the fuck? This is so sloppy. I, I mean, I really liked the first red, actually. I like the first red a lot. I thought this was a considerable, a considerable step down. Uh, it is very mediocre. I mean, yeah, there are those problems, but mostly it's just a matter of... How irritating Mary Louise Parker is she's, in it? She's irritating not because of her performance, but because of... They can't seem to figure out what to do with her character. Yeah, whether they want her to be sort of the badass, like, I'm all into adventure and I'm going to be a spy too chick, or the completely frail and vulnerable weakling. And she goes back and forth in this movie, and it's like, okay, you really need to settle on what she is, because it's not a matter of her trying to figure that out. It's that you keep putting her in scenes where in one she's this, and in another she's that, and there's no explanation as to why the switch occurs, why it goes back and forth. So yes, I find her very irritating because of what they do with her character. I also thought there was just a lot of like really blatantly generic uh, action stuff going on. And, yeah. and what sucks about that, honestly, is, and I'm going to have to look up the name because I always m- mispronounce it, but one of the great additions to Red 2 is Byung-Hun Lee. Um, who you've seen in the G.I. Joe movies, who you've seen if you uh, have watched any of the good Korean uh, revenge flicks like I Saw the Devil. He knows actually how to fight. Yes, and he's fucking great in this movie, except that they don't really give him enough to do. His sequences, his fight scenes, are the best action sequences in the movie. Oh, yeah. Beyond that, it's all very overly music video nonsense. It's the kind of thing I would expect to see in like a Neville Dean and Taylor movie. And frankly, I don't think it gels with the type of characters these are. Like, for example, okay, in the first Red, there's that scene where, like, the car spins around and Bruce Willis steps out while it's spinning. So fucking cool. And and looks decent. Yeah, it's a little over the top, but it works. And in this movie, they're like, okay, but now we're going to take... I'm like, no, 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 no. You reached exactly the level of absurdity that it needed to be in the first one. To have uh, Catherine Catherine Zeta-Jones... Driving the car, do the spin, and then jump into the passenger seat as Bruce Willis. I'm like, okay, no, stop. That and it all, and it looks worse. It looks, <laughs> it looks all terrible. it looks CG and shitty and I don't know. I, I guess for me, and I agree with you there. I thought it looked terrible in the first one too, but that's me. Uh, it's, no, the first I one looks good. You're wrong. <laughs> I appreciate they're trying to make a silly spy film. I mean, this is by Dean Perso, who made uh, Galaxy Quest, for instance, mm-hmm. who did a pitch perfect absurd science fiction movie there, so popular that even Star Trek fans voted it one of the best. 10, Star Trek. Top 10 Star Trek movies. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Uh, uh, but I find that these just misfire for me. And this one, like I said, really not a hell of a lot worse than the first one for me in the same ways that characters do things that seem wildly out of character. Uh, the, the camera skips around so as to con- conveniently let the things keep moving in action scenes, even though physics don't even mildly work that way. And I mean, there's not a James Bond movie that's less realistic. And why is John Malkovich mumbling all his lines? 
I, you know, I, I could only hear about one out of every three things he said. Uh, and, you know, I, I, the one thing I'll say about both these films, I like the chemistry between Willis and Malkovich. I actually genuinely do. And there is the occasional genuinely funny line that you're like, oh, that, that actually when you made can me hear laugh. It. <laughs> True. But it's just all over the place. The plot barely makes any kind of sense. And ultimately, I really wanted to strangle Mary Louise Parker in this film. I just thought, and it's partially, you're right, they miss you. They don't know how to write her character. But they turn her into such a screaming meme half the time. Like, you're a blithering idiot why would bruce willis want anything to do with you i don't know i thought this was just trash yeah i'm not a fan of it and i think the problem is that they got the comedy out of the way in the first one in terms of the gimmick and the setup so when they still fall back on the old jokes a lot in this movie it's like yeah we already established that they're old and we've already established that the gimmick of the first one was that they're old but they can still kick ass so when you keep resting on that laurel and you don't really comedically do anything different i think that's where it kind of lost me and you're bringing in anthony hopkins into this doesn't do anything for this film <laughs> or for anthony hopkins <laughs> i don't know if you guys have ever seen a movie called proof where anthony hopkins plays a uh, a genius math professor with uh alzheimer's who's slowly you know oh, losing his guy. mind that's who that's his character in this movie for like the first half i'm like did his character from proof accidentally join the cia like what's going on here <laughs> Yeah, I think it's mildly more enjoyable than you're painting it to be, but it's ultimately bland and very forgettable. Indeed. Yeah. And in fact, they even it seems like they even knew that it wasn't that big a deal because there's like four minutes of gag reel, four minutes of deleted scenes and a EPK, the Red 2 experience. <sighs> uh, so, yeah, this is I'd call this a skip it. I would agree with the, the skip it. This is one of those. Sunday afternoon, so hungover, you can't eat more than saltine crackers and get off the couch. Oh, look, Red 2's on TV. I never did see this. Let's just see how it goes type of watching experience. I would agree with that. Yeah. All right. Well, that was Red 2. We're moving on from there to We're the Millers. All right. Now I'm going to go the reverse here and say that uh, I'm the only guy, as far as I know, and Martin, who liked this movie. I did not see this movie. So I, I liked it a lot. Oh, did you? Good. I had a lot of fun with it. I thought this movie was funny as it's hell. It's stupid, and but I had a lot of fun with it. Everybody hated it. <laughs> it was like everybody I talked to was like, you liked that movie? I'm like, I don't tell you, my humor, as I get older, I find that my humor is becoming more like distinct from everybody else's i guess <laughs> maybe you shouldn't trust me on comedies i don't know i, I, mean, know, I thought it mostly worked i mean, it's no this is the end that's for sure no, no but, but uh, it's not trying to be this film uh, stars jennifer aniston jason sudeikis emma roberts and will poulter Woo-hoo! the idea being here is that uh uh jason sudeikis is kind of a low-level drug dealer he gets robbed of some money his boss his boss, uh, who, you know, bosses tend not to be cool about that kind of thing, basically says, look, you're going to have to, Ed Helms playing the boss, says you're, you're going to have to get the, the money back one way or the other, but here's what you can do. If you can go down there, we'll have an RV set for you. You drive down to Mexico, come back up, smuggle marijuana back up, and it'll clear your debt. Now he's like, well, I'm just one old stoner dude. I can't do it by myself. They're going to search the thing. So he hires a stripper that he goes to see, played by Jennifer Aniston, which is definitely one of the good things about this film. Uh, <laughs> a runaway 15-year-old girl, played by Emma Roberts, and uh, the teenage kid, uh, Casey, and says, "Let's. Pre- I'm going to pay you to pretend to be a family, and we're going to go down there together So and be all charming. And of course... You know, bonding happens after much ir- being irritated with each other. Lots of goofy events along the way. Lots of colorful characters. One of my favorites being Nick Offerman and Kathleen, Kathleen uh, Catherine Hahn is sort of a very uh, milky toast, Amer- totally American couple on their own little vacation. The who are so funny in this. And they make 
such great comedy together. But there's a lot of good stuff. <laughs> Louise Guzman is really funny in this. Thomas who's the, Lennon. Who, who's the kid, the gangster kid? Scotty P. Yeah. Scotty P. I thought that kid was hilarious. Yeah. I love that whole storyline. <laughs> I, I enjoyed the hell out of this. And I like I said, it's obviously not for everyone. I was shocked when I came out and everyone else didn't think it was as funny as Martin and I did. I mean, I don't think it's the funniest thing in the world, but I think most of it works. Most of what it's going for works. The humor works. I think Will Poulter is great. I honestly Yay, Lee think, Carter. Yes, Lee Carter from Son of Rambo. <laughs> uh, I honestly wish there was more with his character because I think a lot of the a lot of the stuff that does work is is on his shoulders, and uh, and some of the rest of the stuff maybe doesn't quite work as well. And I feel like if they had focused more on him, maybe more of it would have worked. Ed Helms kind of grates on me a little in well, this movie. Well, but... he's only in it so much. That's true. Yeah, and he's playing kind of a generic, like, "Hey, it's the yuppie who's a drug lord." Exactly. Yeah. But, I mean, it doesn't, you're right, it doesn't all work perfectly, but what does work really does, and I... Yeah, I had fun with it. There's something about Jason Sudeikis, he's got that, I don't know what it is, that makes him appealing to me. I'm just like, whatever he's in, even if it's just an okay movie, I'm always like, yeah, but I like Jason Sudeikis in it, you know? He's, he's one of those, like, every man things going on right now. It's yeah. like, okay, I get him. And I think he's great in this, and I kind of feel the same way about Emma Roberts, even though she almost always plays kind of a snobby bitch in everything she's in. <laughs> like, right now, at American Horror Story... Snobby bitch. <laughs> hey, remember Scream Four? But yeah, uh, yeah. but she's <laughs> but she's likable even through the snobby bitchiness of it all. So I don't know. I I, I enjoyed this. I do, yeah. in fact, give it my recommendation. Apparently, Luke does as well, which I'm pleased. To see. Let's just watch this. Now together. we must sure. remember, and I love to bring this up, that this Luke really liked this movie. He also owned four copies of this director's last film. Dodgeball, a true underdog story. I so, like Dodgeball. I do, too. That's yeah. true, I did. What's I wrong just, with Dodgeball? No, it's just funny to me that at one point in time, Luke owned four DVD copies of Dodgeball. Now, I'm curious, they were different. Why did you... Wait, they were, you mean just covers, or...? No, 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 there was a... I, I don't remember all of it. First, there was a regular edition, and then there was an unrated edition, and then there was a collector's edition. Oh, fair it enough. Just, it's just... I got caught up in the double dips. I, and and I now how that. many do we own? One, because I bought one on Black Friday to oh, shut okay. you up. Thank <laughs> God. Because uh, we owned zero. Now, if you watch this version of it, the Blu-ray includes the theatrical version, which is 110 minutes, and a nine-minute longer extended director's cut, which I did not actually get a chance to watch, but uh, I hear it's, it's probably similar. little bits here and there. Uh, there's various different little short production, EPK-type production uh, featurettes. There's a whole bunch of outtakes from the real uh, closer look, unfortunately, at Ed Helms' character. A little short called "When Paranoia Sets In." That's a tongue in, described as a tongue-in-cheek smuggling short. Sixteen minutes of deleted scenes, even more gags and outtakes. It's actually a pretty good, solid collection of stuff to accompanying this pretty funny movie. Right on. Well, we were the Millers, and now we're going to move on to Turbo. 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 DreamWorks animated something. Uh, you know, I guess you don't like this. I thought this was thoroughly cute. This was like going, hey, Pixar, this is how you do a movie about racing. Because it wasn't cars. Yeah, but it's also like, hey, Pixar, remember Ratatouille? We're going to do a worse version of that. The story in every way reminded me of Ratatouille. It's like, you're a snail. You can't do human things that you want to do. True. But I want to. And then my brother's going to have a big speech where he tells me that I should just be happy being a snail. But it's, it's like, Paul no. Giamatti. Hey, you should just be happy being a snail. And it's like, okay, that's great and all. But I don't know. Something about the setup of this movie bothered me where it's like, you you create worlds that we buy into when you do any animated film. Obviously, we have to buy into a world where there are talking snails. Fine. But then there's also the human world. Fine. But then when 
when there's that scene where they literally do the old sports movie cliche of, well, there's no rule that says a snail can't run in the Indy 500. It's like, that's because it's the dumbest idea that I could possibly think of. Well, you go, yeah, but there's a lot of rules that are ultra specific about what the regulations of what the cars can and can't have. So I'm pretty sure you can read that carefully as saying has to be in a car. Exactly. Yeah, you it's could, like... Sure, I'm, a snail can race if he's in a car. Yeah, it's like that movie Rookie of the Year where it's like, well, there's nothing that says an 11-year-old kid can't pitch for them. I'm like, I'm pretty sure there are age restrictions no, in Major League Baseball. And don't get me wrong as well, there's a problem this has with the message that I always hate when they do this, the sort of like, you can be anything you want. And it goes so ridiculously like, I mean, it's a snail who wants to professionally race. And of course he requires against powers. Against cars. Not against other snails, it's like, against cars. You're going to make a message film it should feel like it's accessible to real life on some metaphorical level. Right. <laughs> it's like and that, maybe if you keep trying to walk, little handicap boy, and you wheel through a pole of radioactive sludge, yeah. <laughs> you'll be able to walk. Yeah. It's like I, I don't know that that bugs me a little. But what what I do like, I like the voices of this. I like the comedy of it. I thought Ryan Reynolds did an excellent job as turbo it seems the only movies he can do that are successful are films where he's like the animated character where you don't see him yeah where you don't actually see him which is a shame you don't see his smug ponum throughout the entire film i like ryan Reynolds. I, yeah i just want to point out that i love ryan Reynolds. i do too but you got to admit in every movie but, he has the smuggest look on his face he just he I, it's not even that he makes bad choices he makes good choices for movies that end up not being that great you're yeah. like what green lantern how could that go wrong well <laughs> now we know <laughs> but a lot of good choices in here. I like the guys who are running the taco truck who <laughs> remind me of uh, John Rubio and his brother who who are involved with running a that taco That would truck. be uh, Luis Guzman again yeah. and uh, Michael Pena, who is actually an actor I really love. Uh, yeah, no doubt. I, I think Luis Guzman's really funny as well, but um, who are basically sponsoring the snail to get into the Indy 500. Is the plot absolutely ridiculous and really hard to buy into? Sure, but it always makes it easier when it's a cartoon. And Snoop Lion does voice oh my so. god that got old so fast smooth move i'm gonna i'm gonna do the israel special speaking burr, 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 burr. and it's like okay but you realize that like all of your albums are explicit content right it just seems weird to me that now he's in a kid's movie like isn't it funny that i'm like um have you okay. seen are we there yet no yeah ice cube no because I, I don't you remember when because he i still hold true to the maxim that ice cube is not for the pop Didn't, charts don't you remember when he was in a band called nwa yeah <laughs> Straight out of Compton. Yeah. Crazy motherfucking name, Ice Cube. I'm just saying, that's how they get them. See, <sighs> Sad, when you get man. somebody who's star a of the real, upcoming ride along. When you get somebody who's a who's an actual rebel who's who's trying to do things different, what do they do? They don't kill them. They don't put them in jail. That doesn't work. Instead, they, they make them send them to Disney. No. <laughs> Yeah, no, I understand. Drive a dump truck of money up to their house. You can you can force me to watch it. You can't force me to like it. That's all I'm <laughs> going to say. And yeah, I think you're right though. I think the the schmaltzy message of you can be whatever you want to be is like yeah, but you, if you're a snail, you really can't. Yeah, it's like um, unless as this movie purports, you happen to like fly through an intake system on a street racing car and then get bombarded with nitrous oxide so if you really think about it what this movie is actually saying is you can be whatever you want to be as long as you use performance enhancing drugs you know to be fair 
when I was a teenager, I used to be really afraid of people and talking to people I didn't know and like really insecure that they were going to judge me until about the first second time I did nitrous oxide. And then <laughs> suddenly I changed and became really extroverted and started talking to people. And now look where I am. So. This snail is high as a motherfucker. He's not at the Indy 500. He's in a backyard somewhere like I just won the race. And everything that happens is just a fever dream of snail's drugs. just and... sitting there going. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Him and Snoop Line are just getting baked out of their minds that, okay suddenly this movie makes total sense yep. i'm sorry i apologize I, for everything i said before it's, i will say because i want to be fair hunter s thompson's turbo there you go <laughs> fear and racing in indianapolis uh, that is the one thing i did think they did very well was that uh as someone who's been to the indianapolis motor speedway more times than they can count really they got a lot of like finite details of that raceway dead on and I know no one really will, would give a shit about it, but it was still impressive to me that they took the time. Like, even the entrance ramp where you go, like, from the actual, uh, like, service road into the into the stadium was correct. And not only that, but in the actual racing scenes, the sound is amazing. And especially on this Blu-ray, if you have surround sound, it was fan-fucking-tastic. I, I, I thought uh, overall, just, like, even the look of it, the way they do the racing scenes was actually very get-you-into-it. Your head's kind of dodging around during mm-hmm. it. I mean, it was very well animated and filmed. It's very visceral. Uh, I enjoyed the hell out of watching this for that, among other reasons. But um, I, my, I thought the funniest part of the whole thing is someone who's not an Indianapolis 500 fan was watching Paul Giamatti early on berate Ryan Reynolds and going, oh, you first, you go in the race, then you turn left, and then you turn left again. Mm-hmm. And then, for just a change, you turn left. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> <laughs> yep. And then you go there, and it's fucking amazing. That's Yeah, I don't, I don't agree that that's the case with all racing, but, man, the Indy 500 with, like, all of its crazy, you know, history and, and all the... the rituals and traditions that go along with it it's like a party it's like a giant christmas in the middle of may if you if you're a kid from indy i i don't know i i agree that that's the case with most most racing but i would go back and watch the indy 500 again any year i just want to point out that brian doesn't really remember most of the times he goes to watch the indy 500 because watch the indy 500 stands for get slaughtered at noon sure i do drink a fair amount of beer that is very true it's true like i'm not generally a sports guy at all but i've been to a lot of hockey games could not tell you a thing about what happened after the first 15 minutes or so of those. But I had a games. great fucking but time. I went to a lot of them, had a great time. Hell yeah, man. <laughs> well, yeah, so there's a lot of uh, special features on this particular... A lot of it's EPK, though. Like, I don't know. Part of me really still bemoans the whole putting the EPK on the Blu-ray because it's like all that stuff is available online. That's how they promote the movies with different websites. But then there's another part of me that's like... Yeah, but if they just wholesale got rid of that, then there would be that one movie that came along that had an incredible marketing campaign, and we would want to see that stuff again, and it wouldn't be there. I, yeah, I'm so. all for putting it on the disc. I just like put everything on. Yeah. yeah, but the problem is sometimes, like this is a case that seems like that they're replacing actual cool original content with just the, all the yeah, that's a problem that's already out there. It's like ah. Uh, you know, it makes it look like you're getting a better package than you really are, but I guess it depends. Not everybody will go is going around online looking for every last little bit of promotional material. When it comes to features, add them all and let digital noise sort them out. <laughs> That's the motto. I like it. All right. Well, that was Turbo, and now we're going to get jobs. I knew this day would come when <laughs> it's not the site just buckled and we had to get real. T- oh, wait, no, I'm talking about the movie jobs. Oh, uh, well, then there's definitely somebody who's looking for a job. <laughs> Because this uh, version, 2013 version of the life of Steve Jobs, too soon. Yeah, uh, too bo- soon and too, too soon poorly to have done. Ashton Kutcher played Steve, a guy That's who just died. All this movie had going for it was, hey guys, 
look how much Ashton Kutcher looks like Steve Jobs. And, and it's like, great. Now what? The only reason to go see it is to see, can he pull it off? Spoiler. No. no. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, hold on. Let me download the latest version of no. <laughs> yeah, this is a, a kind of. God, it's not piss poor, but I want to say it is because I walked out with just like a sneer and a feeling dirty after yeah. watching it. Uh, it opens in 2001 with Ashton Kutcher and Steve Jobs uh, introducing an iPod at the Apple Town meeting. Why right? they like the chose big modern day thing, which was a bit, well, because the iPod was a huge deal. You know what else was a huge deal, though? The iPhone. And yeah. you know what audiences today would have connected with more if they didn't really know who Steve Jobs was and they were trying to introduce this man, this mogul, this magnate to a new generation? The fucking iPhone. Well, because I think the iPod was like came out first and it was more of a it was the more of the thing that turned Apple around at that point when they were having troubles. Right. And but. and if they had gone into that, I think, then I would have accepted that, but it's literally the start of the movie is him introducing the iPod and then we never get back to that point. No. no it goes- so there is no further explanation or emphasis put on that device it's just it's it makes it seem like a completely arbitrary decision and it goes back to the 1976 where he's in los altos california with his living with his parents uh working for atari and it develops a partnership with uh steve wozniak played by josh gad here who actually does a pretty good job overall i thought he was i thought he was very uh, i like very strong i'd surprisingly he's not one of those guys who looks like he'd be as good an actor as he is but i think i thought he did a great job um, and then he turned like when he turns up in the internship, and you're like, oh well, at least that guy's trying. And there we're watching a series of rapidly jump doing jumps in time uh, as Steve, who's basically more of an idea man than an inventor in and of himself. He's like, hey, I have this great idea. You guys do this. <laughs> of doing that, being a dick to absolutely everyone who comes anywhere near him, and then eventually going into you know, there's a point where this movie just fuck it, let's just make the rest of this movie a commercial for Apple. And True. it even feels like an old Apple television commercial. They even show an old Apple television oh, to, to, commercial. So, like, even make it worse to go, oh, you know, the last 10 minutes, 15 minutes of this film is just like this commercial. Isn't that artistic? No, it makes this movie feel like a very strange. Like a, like a commercial for Apple that has, like, weird, dirty feelings about itself. Well, and especially since they're just huge chasms of time that they're leaping over and not yeah. covering. And, and at times when Apple is making its biggest developments and really setting itself at the forefront of the ubiquitous technology provider that it is today. Like, why is none of that stuff in there? And then there's the weird situation that you have where... And I don't know. I don't know what the truth is. I never met the man. I haven't read a lot about the man. But if all I'm going off of is this film, Steve Jobs is a giant dickbag. And not yeah. only a dickbag, like, but... Like, just a huge asshole one to not, everyone. One not worthy of the clout and, and the, the, the honor that's been bestowed upon him, which makes the ending card where it's like, in honor of Steve, it's like... Are you honoring him, really? Because, yeah, like, even in the last five minutes, it's, like, him, like, punching the one friend he has left. And you're like, <laughs> why is that the end of the movie? <laughs> so true. This movie brought to you by Microsoft. <laughs> Seriously, it's like, <laughs> poor get... fucking Dylan McDermott? Dermot Mulrooney? Dermot Mulrooney? We never can tell those guys. I don't apart. know, that one dude that plays Mike. Poor Mike. Yeah. <laughs> I just, just gets butt fucked at the end of the movie. <laughs> and it'd be one thing if they were constantly, you know, they, they tell Dermot you, Mulrooney. they keep Dermot telling Mulrooney. you, oh no, he's a genius. But all you ever see is him taking other people's ideas yeah. and being good at explaining them to other people. Yeah. You know, you're like, what is it he did exactly? I mean, the initial idea, sure. 
totally give it to him, even though he didn't really develop it. At least not a lot of the work was was. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. It's like it seems like he didn't really know how to program computers that well. And if he Uh, did, he he may have, but you never see it in the movie. Yeah, he was just like a guy who was good at at coming up with ideas of what should happen and then basically being threatening to people who he needed to work for him. Yeah, I don't know. There's no, I walked out of this going, yeah, just like you. Wow, what a douchebag. I know there's another Steve Jobs uh, biopic in development now, and a lot of what I've heard is is that this they didn't even really have access to like the family or weren't allowed to use stuff directly from the bio- the official biography or anything huh. for this for this particular for this one particular for Jobs. One. Okay, yeah. So this is always going to be considered the redheaded stepchild of the two films for that reason, probably. At, you know, at least. But we haven't seen the other one yet. Maybe it'll be even more. Oh no. He was he actually murdered a bunch of hookers, <laughs> <laughs> which is about the only thing he could do to be more of a dick. Yeah, let's see. Uh, denying his children. That was my that was a fun scene. Oh, yeah. uh, threatening a se- to a sequence of scenes, threatening to come after and take all of Bill Gates's money. That was a fun scene. It doesn't um, even have the sequences like you, I think, said Luke earlier, like the scenes you'd want to see. Yeah, like the, the actual confrontations between him and the Microsoft dude. What's his name? Bill, Bill Gates. Bill Gates. That's over the phone, and we don't even see or yeah. hear Bill Gates. You're like, what? <laughs> yeah. Well, that's weird, too, because, like, they knew each other, and that's never established in the film. Like, they, they had met several times. I want to say they worked together at one point. Like, why is that never Not, touched Why is upon? that never brought into this at all? Yeah, this is a, a pretty terrible biopic by the guy who made Amityville Dollhouse. There you go. <laughs> oh, and Swing Vote. We can't forget that. Did I see Swing oh, Vote? Oh, so man. bad. Oh, man. Oh. So bad. All right, so... Uh, the words TV movie are, are very, I think, relevant to this director's catalog. Oh, yeah. Uh, I, I don't know why this got made. I, I Like, underneath the circumstances. This is just a quick, cheap cash-in is Agreed. all this is. So you should absolutely skip it. Yeah. Gone is the story about how... Apple went to the phone companies and was like, we want to make this phone. And they're, most of the phone companies are like, go fuck yourself. And then AT&T, they worked out a deal, and it was like, oh, uh, all the other phone companies fucked up. Well, it's funny, because like you said, even though it was a little bit of the iPod there, Futron, which was really what saved Apple and made them in a position where they could even do the iPhone in those deals after that. I mean, that was like the changer, where it was like, wow, portable MP3s? That's great. Big deal. We don't get to see any of that period. We get it as far as when basically they reluctantly asked Steve Jobs to come back to Apple because yeah, after they kicked him out of so the company bad. that he founded. And, you know, it well deservedly kicked out of the company yeah. for the record because he was useless. Luckily, when he got back in power, he immediately fired all those people. I hate saying all this <laughs> stuff as if this was totally how it was because we I don't, don't know. Trust this movie. I I know that he got fired. I know yeah. that much is true. But and I know I he came back. I don't. I know. I don't know Apple how much of a dick he was. I don't know how how creative or innovative. I'm he sure was. right now there are Apple fans listening to us going like, "What? No, that's not at all what happened." Well, I don't really know exactly what happened because I have a feeling this movie isn't being completely honest. Look, Waz, if you're listening, buddy, uh, just give us a call and, and clear up some of this shit. <laughs> Seriously, he's on Twitter. I follow him on Twitter. At he loves Wozniak. Interesting fact: loves him some Outback Steakhouse. <laughs> Half the man's fucking check-ins are at Outback Steakhouse. Have you had the Blooming Onion? Uh, dude, I like Outback saying. Steakhouse, too. I'm just saying, Waz eats Blooming there like Onion three 4. times 0, a week. That thing is fucking rad. That's all I'm going <laughs> to well, say. Well, yeah, but be careful. Like, uh, It's yeah. got a lot of bugs in it. <laughs> uh, yeah. 
the new uh, steak app for it is going to screw it and screw it up mm. bad. So. I will say, I didn't hate this. I, I, I it's just like I, I wouldn't even tell you not to watch it necessarily. This is this for me is in the red two area of like it's on on a Sunday and that's fine. I can't even say that because there's nothing in this that's fun. At least red two has some moments. Uh, yeah, that are fun and you can turn your brain off and just go. It's with not it. really a fun movie, but I, I do think Josh Gad is good at it. I think every scene that he's in is automatically that much better. Is improved by his presence. But then I'm, you're just watching him get beat down, so it's like, oh man. I'm on the fence yeah. about the film, but the two yards I could fall into look remarkably similar. One is very much dislike, and the other is hate. So I don't know. I'm walking that very thin line between those two. <laughs> I think at this point, it's like, what's the difference? Yeah, it, pff, just whatever. I'm in apathy. I'm in, <laughs> I'm in the apathy yard. Deep apathy. <laughs> well, moving on from jobs, we're going to talk about Prince Avalanche. You know, this Which is, is from David Gordon Green. One of the indie films a lot of people were talking about were excited to see this year. David Gordon Green, of course, has had kind of an off-and-on record. He had a period where he was kind of experimenting with goofier stuff that didn't work out as well, like with uh, um, uh, Your Highness and The Sitter. Uh, although he did Pineapple Express. Which is amazing. Which is very, very funny in the show Eastbound and Down. But he was better known uh, among some circles, the indie circles, which are certainly the ones paying attention to this film, as doing sort of more character-based films. Even some people called – somebody referred to it as Southern Gothic, although I was like, really? Southern Gothic? But in any event, very heavy drama. Yeah, like, George Washington, All the Real Girls, Undertow. These were good movies. But as far from Pineapple Express as you could possibly you get. Could get. Uh, in fact, strangely enough, he's doing the remake of Suspiria, apparently, which is bizarre to me. What a strange choice. But Prince Avalanche is doesn't really resemble any of those films, except it's definitely more along the more indie – type thing. It's got Paul Rudd and Emil Hirsch. Paul Rudd is uh playing Mario and Luigi. <laughs> <laughs> they are wearing overalls a lot and but only And at one point they literally are wearing a green shirt and a red shirt underneath <laughs> them and I was just like, "Come on, guys." Uh they're kind of an odd pair in that Paul Rudd is very serious all the time. He's more of the hands-on type of guy. Uh and his girlfriend who he's out there saving money so they can have a life together. Uh he's brought her brother along, Lance Emil Hirsch. He's kind of an idiot. <laughs> it's very insecurity all he talks about is trying to get laid yeah uh in fact there's one scene where he doesn't get laid and comes back and is pathetically kind of weeping about it and you're just like you just want to smack the shit out of him you're like man you are the most selfish little dick yeah <laughs> and he's a selfish little 80s dick so he, he's yeah. a dick while wearing weird clothing i don't know uh so basically he's agreed to spend the summer with with uh, his not brother-in-law but i guess boyfriend Girlfriend, sisters, boyfriend. Mm. Uh, to make some money repairing traffic lines down the center of a middle of nowhere country highway in Texas that was ravaged by wildfire. Uh, and, you know, there's points where you're kind of wondering where this is going. <laughs> there are a few points where you wonder where this is going. And you know what? For for its faults, I what I enjoyed about this movie was just kind of watching the, the transitional relationship between Paul Rudd and Emile Hirsch. I thought that was fun. I mean, there was, it was slight. There wasn't a heck of a lot to it, but it was still fun to kind of watch Paul Rudd shake off this sort of weird, like, I almost think of him as a Ron, uh, Ron Swanson type, where he got really sort of overly prophetic about what it meant to be alone in the woods and reading and, and the importance of all letter writing and all this other stuff. And it just felt very much like, you know, like a Ron Swanson type character who's just, you know, in a in a comedy like Parks and Recreation where it's like that it's played up for laughs is one thing. But 
it was fun watching this character sort of work backwards from that point and become just more of a human being, really. Like, well, become yeah, more human. Because, I mean, I think nothing... Like, you're wondering where it's going until the beginning of the third act, where there's an important event that changes both their lives in a significant way and their relationship with each other. And that's the point that you start seeing Paul Rudd realizing, in many ways, he's as immature as Emile Hirsch is. He's yeah. just convinced himself he's wise in many ways. It's just his way of dealing it is is slightly different. Yeah, exactly. Well, a lot different. Yeah, slightly, <laughs> slightly being an understatement. Uh, I mean, that being said, I don't think I ever really connected with either one of these characters. I mean, they were. it's not that they're wildly unlikable. Uh, Emile Hirsch is certainly comes closer to that than Paul Rudd did for me. But both of them are just kind of – it's hard to find an entry point to like – either one of them until really close to the end of the film. And even then it was like, okay, I'm glad for these people that it seems that they've found, you know, that they have sort of an epiphany about existence, but Mm -hmm. not so glad that I felt moved by it. Yeah. My problem wasn't so much with the characters as it was the story, which my problem with the story was twofold. One, I didn't understand the weird subplot about the woman who was sifting through the ashes of her house. Yeah, was she supposed to be real? Yeah, that's they never really they never really weird sort of like, hey, look, this is an arty type metaphor. Yeah, it doesn't belong in this film. No, not at all. And the other thing, and it's funny you mentioned that. My other problem was the overstated metaphor of the fact that what they do for a living is paint lines on a road. And look, wouldn't you know it, once things start going bad, those lines on the road start getting real wavy and they don't follow a certain direction anymore. I was like, okay, I get it. I get it. That's yeah. that, I, that's You've totally sold me on it. Stop showing it to me. Yeah, I thought it, you're right. It, it was like in that level, it was like just beating that drum way too obviously. And then the other thing was like, I still don't know what the fuck they were getting at with that. Yeah. <laughs> the, the, what, was the, what purpose did she serve in this? I mean, I have a feeling even if you explained it to me at this point, I'd go... Oh, yeah, still don't care. (laughs) It's not a terrible film. No, not at all. It's just an okay indie film. And I was surprised by a lot of the praise it got, other than the fact that I think Paul Rudd is a terrific actor who rarely gets to do dramatic roles anymore. Yeah, this is, this is a a reach for, for Paul Rudd. This is not something you see. It's not the same character you see him play every single time, which is just sort of like the, the fringe likable yuppie. Like, yeah, that's not who he's playing in this film, and I think that's the most interesting part. Agreed. And Emil Hirsch, who's done some really serious stuff before, here is playing the role that most of the people he are of his age group who are in Hollywood end up playing all the time, which is the sort of like brainless slacker guy. Yeah, uh, I think I prefer him as the less brainless slacker myself. Into the Wild <laughs> is still my favorite movie with him. I thought that was absolutely amazing, but I, I actually haven't seen that one. Oh, it's so good. But yeah, Prince Avalanche. You know, I mean, for, it's Magnolia Pictures, so you know, right there, it's going to be a little. Cutesy indie film. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> sorry, am I wrong? Am I wrong? Unless it's not really, no. I love Magnolia. I love the stuff they do a lot of the time, but they do their creep. Yeah, you know what I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> I hope so, because those words made no sense. Uh, the, the, there's one deleted scene. Uh, there's uh, uh, commentary uh, with the director and production assistant and talent driver. I don't know why they don't have the actors on that. But there is a, sh- uh, a short featurette here with uh, Paul Green, uh, Paul, uh, I'm sorry, David Gordon Green, Paul Rudd, and Emile Hirsch. I keep wanting to say Judd Hirsch, uh, which would be <laughs> weird, who discuss about the process of developing these characters. I get the feeling this was from everything I've read about it. It's one of those projects they kind of built as a team, mm-hmm. you know, put together, decided who these people were. There's a whole feature about the actual fires in 2011 that ravaged most of Bastrop State Park uh, and destroyed over 1,600 homes. Uh, 
and a couple other little things, interviews, things like this. I mean, honestly, it's got a lot more shit than you would expect from a little movie like this. Sure. So if you like this, if you've seen it already and you liked it, they actually make it well worth your 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 buck to pick it up. Heck yeah, dude. Prince Avalanche. Which, also the title, is that just because... There's not one Avalanche in this Well, no, is film. it because their names are Alvin and Lance and that kind of sounds like Avalanche? Alvin! Which he does at one point in the he movie, does. and I almost fell over laughing. Yeah, that was pretty funny. I was like, I don't, is that supposed to be funny? Because it is. It was funny to me. <laughs> well, from Prince Avalanche, we're going to talk about a movie called Drew. 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 The man Drew. behind the poster. It's actually a Drew Struzan documentary. Oh, my God, you guys, Drew Struzan. Oh, my God. He is pretty awesome. Drew Struzan, you know. You know who Drew Struzan is. You do, I guarantee. If you're you, listening to the show, there's no way you don't. And you're like, no, I swear, Chris, I don't know who Drew Struzan is. Yes, you do. Do you remember? Yes, you do, Brad. Let me, let me narrow this in for you. You remember that awesome Brad. poster Brad. and me. early VHS <laughs> cover for the Goonies? Yeah, okay, that's Drew Struzan. Hey, you remember pretty much all of the artwork for Star Wars, Indiana Jones, uh, First Blood, uh, the Harry Potter movies? Dude, this is one um, of those films that you're going to watch it and they're going to show you image after image after image and you're going to go, that was Drew Struzan? That was Drew Struzan? Uh, all of the Drew Muppet Struzan? movie posters? Like, you have no idea how many films you've seen that you, like, you, like, the posters are almost more iconic in your brain than the actual films are. Sure, Big mm-hmm. Trouble in Little China. Big Trouble in Little China, oh like, my god. Great one I've got hanging up in my living room for Blade Runner, the final cut, that was yep. actually original art he did for Blade Runner when it first came out, and they did chose not to use it, and then years later when they released the final cut, they're like, okay, now we're gonna use it. Drew Struzan, in a lot of ways, and what he represents, is the reason I still collect VHS. Because I've always said that the reason I do that is because there was there was a time when there was artwork, there was artistry put into the cover of even the most ridiculous movie, even the most cast aside genre nothing had a beautiful hand painted poster, and that poster was usually on the VHS cover. And anymore, it's all Photoshop. It's there's no artistry to movie posters anymore. It's literally just slapped together heads or group shots of the cast. Drew Struzan is the guy who created. The vast majority of the best of that era of of cinema artwork, like to, I think the post, the word poster might even be a little, I don't know, uh, underwhelming in terms of of what he represents and, and what he actually put into. It. I mean, these are works of art. Yeah, and if you don't believe us, uh, the film has people like Steven Spielberg, George Lucas, Michael J. Fox, Thomas Jane, which I thought was an odd choice. Although he's <laughs> fucking hilarious. He's it. really funny. A lot of big famous faces who come in and it's like, oh my god, this guy was everything. I mean, you're walking around LucasArts uh, uh, Skywalker Ranch and like every picture in it is Drew Struzan posters. Yep. You're like, ah, I see. And for good reason. Now, I do have a problem with this documentary, and, okay. and it's not a serious one. It's that they're very limited in what they were trying to do here. They had two goals. One, to just suck Drew Struzan's dick like it's never been sucked before. And I guarantee you, this guy had the explosion of his life from his ego for this, because it's all about what a great guy, what a terrific artist, how wonderful he is, and everything that he does, And which is probably true. I'm not saying it's not true. I'm just saying that's what it is. <laughs> and the other thing is... God, doesn't it suck that everything's changed and Drew Struzan can't even find work doing posters anymore because all they want to do is two-head Photoshop posters. Another sentiment I completely agree with, and ultimately the goal of this movie seems to be like a begging to whoever will listen – don't let this happen. They're taking away the art of the movie poster, which is one of the reasons you have companies like Mondo making so much money right now mm-hmm. because they're doing the posters we all wish were the actual theatrical posters for these films instead of the crappy uh, mountain he- heads of mount- uh, mountains of heads mm-hmm. done poorly with Photoshop that they're doing. 
Uh, but, you know, I don't think it's going to take away from you just enjoying this film. I think it just takes away from it being like a film that I can judge as a great documentary film. It's not a great documentary film, but it is a, a fun as hell movie to watch. If you're a fan, if you grew up in the 80s or 90s and you love this stuff, you're just going to have like one time and over. Oh, I love that one. Oh, I love that. Oh, I didn't ever even saw that one. That's awesome. Yeah. I mean, it's just it's it's consistently entertaining all the way through for that reason. If, if no other, there's a lot of very funny interviews with it. Uh, overall, like I said, good time, just not like on a, on a sheer art level, what I would call a really good movie. Well, I mean, I would blame that more on some strange editing choices. Like, I, I, I don't know, I find it a little odd to judge, <coughs> judge a documentary for making two points that, you know, you agree with both of them. You know, I mean, I, I agree with, I agree with you. Like, that's what this movie's trying to do. It's trying to show you how great Struzan is and show you and, and lament the, uh, the state of movie posters now. But I mean, it does, it, it conveys both of those messages well, and we agree with both of those messages. So where's the, where's the criticism? Well, I it's, guess, uh, the criticism is that it's just too broad about it. It's okay. like, it barely even tells us anything about his life. I mean, we literally are given like tiny little, tiny little drops information about his life. You know, it's not a biography of Drew Struzan. It's a biography of the work that he did. Yeah. The poster work specifically. Uh, and, and I felt like I never really got to know who Drew Struzan was watching it. I just got to learn a lot about the art of making posters. Nothing wrong with that specifically, but the movie seems to market itself as something else. Hmm. Uh, I feel like it's, it's simplistic to the point where it, it's not craft really, uh, you know, in the sense that I would judge like, a documentary that would be nominated for best documentary. Right. Or and I, I think, I actually think part of that comes from, and, and maybe I'm wrong. I mean, obviously you have your own views on it, but I think part of that may come from the fact that you and me and Luke are three people that know Drew Struzan very well and know his work. So we may have wanted more of a, of a personal glimpse at the man. Whereas this may be, this may be a movie better sold to people who aren't familiar with Drew Struzan, who don't know what his contributions to cinema were because you're right they do focus on that more than his life i think the moments that they do touch upon from his background are very moving because they communicate the same struggle that a lot of people in a lot of different art forms have when you're just trying to to make ends meet and you're trying to do what you love i mean we can certainly appreciate I mean, that and it know. is it's a movie about an artist made for artists or people who love these kind of artists specifically um, i'm poor <laughs> I mean, the best part of this whole thing to me was, and it's not till over halfway through it when they're like, oh yeah, and then this one time this dude totally took advantage of that them. story. And you're like, what? But they tell the whole thing with just a series of talking head things. And I'm like, this is where you should go, uh, and put all your effort into it and start showing us pictures and start like having the film be dynamic. And yeah. it, it never really changes. It just kind of coasts through it and then goes, okay, now back to the posters. That story was amazing, you know, about this guy who tried to rip Drew Struzan off and sell all of Drew's artwork at Christie's at auction when he had essentially stolen it all from Drew Struzan. And Drew shows up at the auction house and just stands up and, like, confronts the guy. And the guy dies of a heart attack. <laughs> Drew Struzan, who throughout this movie is very humble, very sweet guy, not imposing whatsoever. Killed a man. Killed a Stone man. Stone cold killer. With his eyes. <laughs> with mind bullets. <laughs> I was just like... And that was actually the best part for me was the fact that Drew was treating it like it was nothing. He's like, well, you know, I guess a dead guy can't sue you. And it was just like, what the fuck, man? <laughs> you are a, you're a killer and you're an amazing artist. And I hope that if nothing else, he continues to work with, with Mondo because we have uh, his Frankenstein and his, and his The Thing. 
Oh, by the way, yeah, he did the cover for The Thing. John Carpenter's The Thing with the light shooting out of the... astonishing movie poster. Incredible piece of art. And did it before seeing the film. Oh, yeah. And and did it, like, over a weekend. Uh, It was cracking me up a story about the Goonies. Because, you know, he, like most artists, sometimes uses models. And he was like, well, the Goonies poster, which is a very sort of, like, close-up perspective going into a distant perspective thing. He's like, that's really difficult to do. I could not figure out how to do it. So at one point, they had a bunch of kids dangling off a rope off (laughs) their back window. (laughs) He could paint this picture. It's like, yeah, that was probably not I also love the story about Michael J. Fox. Because, oh, by the way, he did the posters for all the Back to the Future movies, too. Yep. Yeah. Uh, there's a great story about when they were doing the poster and he had Michael J. Fox and Christopher Lloyd come in and it was for two actually and do the poster where, you know, uh, Marty McFly is looking at his watch and then Doc is right behind him. So they're having them pose. And at one point, Michael J. Fox just threw up his hand and goes, hold on a second. And Drew Susan's like, great. And I pissed off the movie star. What's happening? Michael J. Fox walks up to him and goes, are you the Drew Struzan? <laughs> and he's like, yeah. And Michael J. Fox gives him a big hug. He's like, I'm your biggest fan. <laughs> yeah. And clearly, because he's here in this film. Yeah. Just like, absolutely talking. Just, this is guy's amazing. Definitely. Yeah. And again, if you're, if you're not familiar with just who Drew Struzan is and all the great things that he's done for film art, you really need to check this out. It may not be the most comprehensive documentary about Drew Struzan, the man, but it is certainly a great way for you to get introduced to Drew Struzan, the artist. True. All right on. Well, we're actually going to take a short break and then come back with a uh, host more titles. But unfortunately, we will be losing Luke Mullen. So sad. 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 Luke. I'll miss you guys. Luke has a real job, and he requires sleep for said real job, which I understand. I'm still going to call him a pussy for No, I'm a total vagina. But (laughs) (laughs) But, But I'm going to go to bed, and you're not. So fuck you. I'm the guy who's wrong here, and I understand that. (laughs) My instincts can't be helped. Although Luke is correct. I would love to be going to bed right now. Sleep is a distant memory for me. I wish I could do my entire job from bed. Yes. Like, just stay there. Get a Homer Simpson bed with a toilet built in. Yeah. That'd be amazing. Yeah. Yeah. It would be like that guy from Seven with all the air fresheners hanging from the ceiling. It would be great. Mm, yeah, <laughs> kind of taking the charm out of it. I was thinking more Futurama in my head. So. Oh, like hedonism? <laughs> yeah. Kind of Bring like, me another laptop. I seem to have spilled gravy on this one. It's like the, the one point plastic sheeting comes up over you and it spray washes you down. <laughs> <laughs> Much like the produce at your local grocery exactly store. Exactly like that. We even have little thunder sounds to make it nice. Oh. Well, we're going to take a break, and when we come back, we'll have more to talk about. Stick around. We're just going to drink more heavily if you don't. Let me see. We have a scarf for Skywalker, right? Yes. And perfume for the princess? Yes. yes. What about Han Solo? Couldn't we get him here? That leaves one big problem. The Wookiee. Couldn't we get him a comb? He gave him a comb.
Segment two time. We haven't had a segment two in a while. Well, we had no choice because fucking Luke has got to go make a living. He's a sleepy guy. Mm. He's got to get up and do work stuff. Even while we speak, he's... Man, that guy is the most serious snorer i yeah. have ever known <laughs> no it's pretty it's pretty amazing oh I, my god i'm thinking about calling guinness about I that came one time the house next door was shaking <laughs> oh luke we love him the dogs were frightened that's all i'm saying <laughs> that's true but they're frightened by most things <laughs> so segment two is going to start off with a little bit of well a lot of bit of doctor who yay so as you can imagine, I'm not going to be saying too much because I still have never seen an episode. Well, there is a well, we got to fix that sometime. But yeah. uh, there is a lot of shit that came out. A lot of this stuff that came out while I was gone, but I really have to address because I finally have gotten the chance to watch it. The most pertinent of this is probably the episode Doctor Who Terror of the Zygons. Now you're asking why in the fuck do I give a shit about Doctor Who Terror of the Zygons? I don't even know what that means. Well, can you say Doctor Who fights the Loch Ness monster? Can I you? Can. Well, you should because that's kind of cool. And the Loch Ness monster is so wonderfully BBC television silly. I was going to say, it looks like a chocolate-covered Loch Ness monster right? in this picture. He's delicious and has a marshmallow creamy filling. I always start with the eyes. <laughs> uh, but the reason this is actually pertinent is because the recent uh, Day of the Doctor episode that came out, which was, of course, the big 50th anniversary episode, features the Zygons and a prominent uh, thing in it. And also, well, I don't want to say too much. There's a huge spoiler that I could say here, and I'm not going to. Uh, you'll just be happy when you get to the end of the episode. If you want to know what that, that spoiler is, you can watch the uh, Day of the Doctor, or you can read any of the 20 articles that we posted about Day of the Doctor in the last couple <laughs> sure. weeks. Sure. I'm just not going to be the one to say it. Somebody <laughs> out there is like, uh. But this is a fourth Doctor, Tom Baker episode. Tom Baker being uh, the one that was my Doctor. He was the one who introduced me to Doctor Who. Uh, and it originally came out in 19 September, 19 August to September of 1975 in four parts. This new DVD is really cleaned up. It really looks beautiful. Uh, following the story about the Zygons or these shape-changing aliens who look like they're, if the the sucker tip of an octopus's like arm turned mm -hmm. into a self-aware being, what it would look like. It had like grew arms and legs of its own. kind of looks like that. Sound, sounds like a anus with appendages. Okay. <laughs> now I feel a little ill. But this brings a lot of the beloved characters in this, including Sarah Jane Smith. Everybody loves Sarah Jane Smith. She's at her best here. This has always been regarded as one of the better episodes of this of the, the Fourth Doctor's run, of which there are quite a few. And sure enough, it is a lot of fun. Like I said, not the least, the Loch Ness Monster stuff is a riot. It's so much fun in here. The Zygons are a great villain, uh, used to great effect here. Um, so much good stuff worth watching in that sense, but that's not all, of course, with these new sort of remastered super versions of the episodes the BBC's been putting out lately, they've been loading them down with bonus features, which is super, super cool, and this is no exception. The best thing on this, of course, is that there are interviews that took place in 2003 with Tom Baker, uh, who played the fourth Doctor, and with the now sadly deceased, uh, uh, Elizabeth, oh God, I'm forgetting her name. Uh, Elizabeth Sladen, I believe, uh, who played Sarah Jane Smith. And there's some, some really insightful stuff in there. Some really funny stuff that Tom Baker says that will make you laugh in light of some of the, uh, the events of Day of the Doctor. He seems rather prescient, if you would, if, if, if you will. Maybe I will, maybe I won't. <laughs> Lots of good stuff on here. Well worth your time. Also out on a separate release here is a first Doctor episode, The Tenth Planet. Now, this is a William Hartnell, old crabby Doctor. The so, first one. Doctor, Tenth Planet. 
Yes. Okay, and just the, want to keep it straight. The 10th planet is the planet of the Cybermen, which apparently, and I didn't even know, the Cybermen, long-time Doctor Who villain. This is them at their earliest and really silliest. I mean, seriously, at this point, the budget was so low. Rather than give them ac- actual robot masks, they just give them a flashlight on their head and, like, ski masks. Yeah, they kind of look like cooks who were turned into robots, like Chef Boy or something. They're, they're so corny, it's worth a look in and of itself. Uh, but apparently, they came, the Earth used to have a twin twin planet and that twin planet is like like now come back and it's the cybermen planet and they're basically it's so funny i didn't really realize this till i read the star trek crossover with doctor who that they made which is actually a pretty good comic book with the borg versus the cybermen versus the federation and you're like well the borg are really similar to the cybermen and you start putting it together and you're like oh <laughs> The Borg are really a ripoff of the Cybermen. <laughs> uh, and that becomes – is pretty clear in here as well. Now, this is you – know, I'm not the world's biggest fan of these early William Hartnell ones. They were trying a little too hard to make them educational film with little science facts to where the things get bogged down in that. They always tend to focus more on the new incidental characters than they do on the Doctor and his companions himself, which are like – Stop. Go back to the doctor. I want to watch him doing goofy stuff. This is not one of my favorite episodes, even though it's not the introduction of the Cybermen. But, wow, did they load it down with bonus features, which is nice, too, because it's one of those that the fourth the fourth part of it, that episode never longer exists, except in parts and photographs. So you're kind of watching a, uh, a put-together version of the last bit of it based on that. Uh, or at least you used to. Now this new one is one of those animated ones, which is – they're good, but they're never quite the same. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, filled with contents, including a really rare interview with William Hartnell. There aren't a lot of filmed interviews with William Hartnell when he was at – apparently backstage at a Christmas pantomime tour of Puss in Boots he starred in in 1966. Oh, everyone saw that. Where he's, but they're talking to him about you know the, being the doctor, and there's just very little of that stuff out there interviewing him. Uh, a lot of good, good stuff on here that takes a look at, like, for instance, there's a look at the myth of there being a golden age for Doctor Who, as if this stuff was better than what came later. Not true. <laughs> no. And it's it's also funny to me that this is called the 10th planet, which if you gave it some time and thought, you would know that if there was an extra planet in our solar system, that would now be the ninth planet, since Pluto has been decommissioned as a planet. They didn't know that then. No, they didn't, but it's just funny to think about going back now and watching it. Like, the tenth planet, which technically now is two beyond the last of what we call planets. The ninth planet, and then one. And then one. <laughs> uh, yeah, like I said, I wish this was better, because it's the introduction of the Cybermen, and honestly, the best parts are with the Cybermen themselves, because they're just so absolutely ridiculous. You cannot believe that these ended up becoming a primary Doctor Who villain, but but they got a lot better with writing them and with their costumes and stuff as time went on. So fair enough. Now, the big solid thing to get out of this set, of course, is the second chapter of Doctor Who, The Doctors Revisited, five through eight. They've already put out one through four, which took a look at a single episode from William Hartnell, Patrick Troughton. Uh, 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 oh, God, how am I forgetting the middle guy? The middle guy. The third guy. <laughs> middle guy. Name, John something. <laughs> and, and Tom Baker. This goes on and takes a look at uh, Peter Davidson, Colin Baker, um, uh uh, see now I can't remember Sylvester McCoy and the single Doctor Who movie that was made for American television with Paul McGann which surprisingly is much better than I remember it being I remember going eh. watching again I was like hey that was actually a lot of fun and that has a lot to do with the fact that Paul McGann was so great as the Doctor in it and it was so different from everybody who came before yet it totally worked you're like 
Man, it is a shame we never really got to see that guy get to do, be the doctor unless you listen to all the radio shows he's done. But not only that, the Sylvester McCoy episode on here – and Sylvester McCoy is often denigrated as one of the least popular of the doctors. He was the one that basically ended the Doctor Who run while he was the doctor. You're like, oh, nobody likes you, so we're going to end this show, huh. <laughs> uh, which is a shame because the first season was apparently not that good. Then they did like I think like three more seasons and people were just starting to really get into the story. Like big fans who've watched it all tell me it's one of the most intriguing running storylines in the history of Doctor Who that they were building to and never managed to actually finish. But this episode, Remembrance of the Daleks, which was the first serial of the second season for him, is one of the best Dalek episodes I've ever seen. It's totally action-packed. I mean, like, big time, like an action movie. Lots of cool shit in here. His assistant, Ace, who uh, is – she's almost a chav, really, but, uh, you know, streetwise kid who is walking around with a boombox like, shit, you know. <laughs> she's actually d- d- square-jawed and action-packed in this. Like, she's, like, really – there's a running joke where she, like, loves blowing things up, so she's always making this explosion explosive that she came up on her own called like nitro seven or something and the running joke the doctor's like hey you remember that explosive that i told you never ever to make and bring with you yeah i don't suppose you have any with you do you <laughs> you sure do yep <laughs> i keep it right here in my ghetto blaster actually this is a lot of fun i really had a great time with this now this also includes the episode we talked about in the past an earlier episode vengeance on veros which is colin baker it's not one of my favorite ones ever but uh, or, uh but i'm not the world's biggest fan of the sixth doctor colin baker he was kind of schizophrenic but it does have one of the best companions perry who's just freaking gorgeous i, I find it so funny that you, that you find him schizophrenic when he's playing a character that's been played by what what, 13 people now? 12 <laughs> well, he's people? the one who, like, like there was actual problems with the transference from the last Doctor, and he is sort of a mix of all these personalities of the different Doctors, so he's literally kind of schizoid. Oh, good lord. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> uh, it's okay. a lot okay. to catch up on. It's one of the better Colin Baker episodes, but once again, not the world's biggest fan of Colin Baker in general. It'll do. But really great is the Peter Davidson episode, who is very underappreciated since he followed Tom, Tom Baker and was playing it much more serious. But uh, his episode here is a Cyberman episode, uh, Earthshock. It's actually really, really good, and it features one of the only deaths of a companion in the entire run of mm. Doctor Who. One of the only times they actually killed one of the major companions, which is kind of a big shock, as well as one of the more fun, like, ridiculous science twists, history of Earth stuff. Like, I laughed out loud. I was like, really? Okay, that's awesome. You can have that one. You win. A lot of fun. A good Cybermen episode. They're, they're When they're done right, they're a lot of fun. Really recommend it. The other advantage of the set is each one of these comes with about a 25-minute bonus feature that's sort of like the story of that doctor where they're doing a sort of like very made for tv like let's take a look at the history of the fifth doctor and interview people who were around them. who were the who's you know which is not just a nice little overview even though the paul mcgann one is next to useless because you're like uh dude we just watched the movie why would we just watch a <laughs> recap of the movie <laughs> starting from the beginning because that's all you've got <laughs> so anyway this is well worth it uh certainly a lot of people have not seen a lot of the earlier Doctor stuff. Much like the first collection, each one of these is very much a good representation of what that Doctor was and them at their best. It's a great starter. It's a great gift for somebody who you know likes the Christopher Eccleston and on and has always been curious about the early stuff. This is a terrific thing to get them. Right on. Well, that's a shit ton of Doctor Who for you in this episode. It is. A no small amount of Who. 
And now we're going to move on to something that I don't know if we're that excited to talk about. It's just the Mystery Science Theater 3020th anniversary set! Oh my god! Oh my god. I was so happy to get this. The only thing that could have made this better is if they had included the little plastic models of all the characters <laughs> that came out with the first couple Shout oh, Factory yeah. sets you can't even get anymore, goddammit. Every time I see them, at uh, like I always go to the Shout Factory desk at Comic-Con and go, so you guys figured out a way yet? You can just sell those plastic figures separately? Yeah, you go up to those <laughs> tables like Oliver Twist. It's it's very sad. And I like. I will eyes. buy them. I got I got a hundred bucks right now. I'll give you for just Tom Servo and Crow. Yeah. <laughs> Somehow that's never uh, surfaced. However, I have to say that as much as I do love those uh, the plastic figurines of the characters that came with some of the other sets, I think this is the best set they've put out. Well, in collect sheer collection of films that's here and bonus materials. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they this is a hell of a set because really not only out. not only do you get uh, you know, more episodes that you would, you know, normally get. Not only do you get the posters, the little, you know, hand-painted mini posters that are uh become a staple of the Shout Factory releases. Not only is it in a steel tin, steel tin, a tin case, but as a bonus, they give you two additional episodes. Yes, and really great ones at that. One of my single favorite episodes of all time Mystery Science Theater, Mitchell. Mitchell. <laughs> Mittens? Why is he named Mittens? <laughs> Mitchell. Yeah, Joe Don Baker movies from the 70s. You can't go wrong when you're making fun of those. And, you know, let's not forget the reason that one of the reasons that's so pertinent is because that's the episode where Joel leaves the show and Mike takes over, which mm. it plays through in the interstitial bits all the way through as we see Mike sort of becoming a character and Joel getting trying to figure out how to get off the satellite yeah and it, they didn't just randomly pick the two episodes they give you as a bonus we have mitchell which as chris mentioned is joel's last and then the brain or head that wouldn't die which is the very first mike episode which is also very good not quite as good as mitchell but still very good episode and again one of the running jokes in that movie is that it's called one it the, the movie has one title at the beginning and one title at the end so they keep like, – is it the brain that wouldn't die or the head that wouldn't die? It's called both. Uh, no, the actual movies that come with this are pretty solid too. I was a big fan of Moon Zero 2, which is one of those gloriously 70s science fiction films that actually is kind of watchable on its own. Like mm -hmm. you don't even necessarily need robots to have fun with Moon Zero 2. Yeah, it's, it's bizarre in and it, of itself. It is a really bizarre mo little movie, but it's one of those – it's very stylish. It's trying to do things that probably were inappropriate in retrospect and didn't, didn't really, really work. But in like in nostalgia wise, it's a lot of fun, and it's directed by Roy Ward Baker. Oh no, shit! Yeah, who's like uh, the, who has a huge career of films that he did, including the legendary English Quatermass and the Pit in 1967, uh, Doctor Jekyll and Siskel, Sister Hyde, Asylum, which I yeah, I was gonna say, I believe he was of. one of the big. Uh, uh, Guys at Atticus, so yeah, yeah that makes sense. Uh, Moon Zero Two is a bizarre little sort of western in space type thing, and it's so funny. Uh, as well, the day the Earth froze falls into one of those great weird Finnish mythology movies that Mystery Science Theater loves to do and always has a, does a terrific time. If you love it. the Mike episode, Jack Frost, yes, definitely check this episode out. And you're going to want to uh, get pick up some Sampo for this one. <laughs> I'm just saying, you got to have some Sampo. Got to have some Sampo. <laughs> I was saying Sampo for like a week after watching you this. You will. Just it'll, constantly. It'll just be a thing that it's you do. one of those running jokes that you're like, okay, I don't even know what Sampo is, but I know I need some. <laughs> uh, now, I did not get around to watching The Leech Woman, sadly. I have a note. I've always heard that's considered to be a pretty good episode. It's hilarious. I mean, and, and most of the comedy comes from there's a character in the movie that's supposed to be like over 100 years old, and it's this very tiny woman 
that they've e- that either is really that old or they've wrapped in enough like leathery bacon to like convince you that she's that old. And of course, they make a lot of uh, what is her name? Uh, the grandmother from the Beverly Hillbillies. Yeah. So she just they they have the character walking around going Jen Jen, <laughs> which I always find hilarious. And this is actually really fitting. Uh, Gorgo is in here now. Gorgo was a movie that uh, months ago Chris and I just kind of watched on a lark and decided about three minutes in that it was so bad. Uh, I think we're actually watching it to review on the show. Yeah, we were because uh, Matt Frank had That's uh, right. hooked us up to getting copies because he wanted so badly to review it with us, Yeah, which he did end up doing. And we watched it. We're like, this is terrible. So we got drunk and just did our own Mystery Science Theater for it. And that's actually why we decided to do film commentaries on the site. Yeah. So it was funny to actually watch them do a much better job than we did of Which, making fun of Gorko. We also got drunk and watched together. Yes. <laughs> yeah. It, it just felt it felt right. It felt like a tradition or the closing of a circle needed to happen here. But uh, let it be said, this is definitely one of the best sets you can get for Mystery Science Theater. It's a hell of a good deal. Uh, plastic figures or no. Uh, yeah. This is my this is my pick of the week. Yeah, I, absolutely. Spectacular. Absolutely is my pick of the week. This is an absolute must-have for fans of the show, especially if you're a fan who's been collecting the sets that Shout's been putting out. I think this is the best that they put out in terms of not only the quality of the episodes chosen, but the bonuses are just, I mean, again, to get two additional episodes just because yeah. is and, phenomenal. And, and there's, you know, like the way they've done it is like it's basically like one 70-minute documentary that they've divided up into parts on each disc. Uh, that's a really good documentary with all new stuff on it. Sadly, Mike Nelson was not able to be interviewed for it, which is sad. But I yeah. think it's like two sets ago or something. There was a there was a, a separate like sort of like 45-minute or so documentary about them from years that was recorded years back that actually does have a lot of mic. So combine those together and you've got one big, long, awesome documentary. Documentary. Uh, there's also a lot of the the separate stuff you, you expect, like they get back like actors who win some of these crappy films, laughing and talking about them, that sort of thing. Just yeah. classic. It's what makes Shout Factory so great at what they do. Indeed. And again, our pick of the week. We've got to get Mary Jo Peel on here sometime. Yeah, I, I I've asked her once before, and she was out of town at the time. But we just got to remember to ask her again. Absolutely. Yeah. Pick this up, guys. We're not kidding around. From there, we're gonna talk about Renoir. Now, this is actually France's entry into uh, the the Academy Awards this year pick for Best Foreign Film because each country is allowed to basically submit one movie. This is their one they agreed to submit. Unless you're the UK and then you just, you know, you'll just be nominated along with the American films. Uh, yeah. Well, that's because they've called it foreign language film now. Ah. So it has tricky, to be foreign. Tricky. Yeah, I know. That's where the complication lies there. So you're just shit out of luck if you have a little arty film in the UK that nobody saw over here. If you don't speak English. <laughs> a Renoir is two, came out in 2012, and it, it of course, is a, about the artist Renoir. Big shocker there. It's about Pierre Auguste Renoir. You know, one thing I did not realize that his son was the director Jean Renault? Renard? Renoir? Really? Yeah, that's his son. I did not know that. No idea. In fact, all his sons ended up moving into art and doing stuff. One of them was doing uh, sculpture and stuff like that. I guess that makes sense, but I just never put two and two together on that. This is one of those very narrow view films where it's about, it's towards the end of his life. Uh, Renoir is very old and he has basically, (laughs) uh, apparently, as we discover over the years, he'll get a model, like a woman, he's like, oh, she's perfect, and have him model for for him for a long time and then eventually she'll 
they'll probably sleep together, end up in his bed, and then they end up becoming like a servant in the house and just working at the house. Because you find out this whole slew of women working in the house that all at one previous point had been models for Renoir, and now they just live there. So basically, <laughs> he's got this whole like harem <laughs> of chicks living in this house. Uh, his wife has been dead for some years, and uh, his son, uh, Jean, is just now coming home from the war. And he starts forming a connection in here between his latest uh, selection of of model, uh, Andre. The latest model, if you will. Yeah, played by Krista Thorette, who I believe is kind of a newcomer, just absolutely gorgeous. Um and, and, you know, be, be sure that this is a, as much as this is in many ways completely harmless film. It's very, it's very ambient. It's very about sort of the, the beauty of the, the place where he lived at the time, about how, where he lived in his surroundings affected his style of work. I mean, it helps to be really into the artist already. There's not a lot. It doesn't, it barely even gets into the war that was going on at this time. Um, it's what there was a war. It's filled with nudity. She's naked throughout this entire movie, pretty much. And not, filled with nudity. I mean, she's not having sex. She's just modeling, mm-hmm. but like she's naked, like through half the movie. So it's not something you necessarily, depending on how you feel about that sort of thing, want to watch with your kids. They'd probably be bored anyway. <laughs> but if you really love the art history and that sort of thing, it's a, it's a nice little portrait. It's just, there's not a lot of actual drama in it. The, the plot's a little bit on the thin side, unfortunately. It's just beautifully shot. The cinematography is gorgeous. The actress is gorgeous. The guy who plays Renoir is wonderful in this. Um, and I do recommend it, but selectively, you know, mm-hmm. if you're, if you know you're a big fan of this artist, I think you're probably going to like it. But if you're looking for something a little more, dramatic this is not going to be your movie a flighty arty french film full of beautiful women yeah the deuce you say (laughs) it's not going to win best foreign film (laughs) well now that we've cleared renoir let's talk about clear history clear history is larry david who is so popular with hbo for what he does with this show curb your enthusiasm as well he should be because that's a great funny show that they've said you know what why don't you do a completely separate comedy film that you can write and and star in and then he makes a film that essentially is just an extra episode of curb your enthusiasm (laughs) yeah from the promos it kind of looked like that i mean at first it doesn't seem that way because he looks like charlie manson he's got like (laughs) really long hair and this giant beard and he's a guy who's sort of like a crazy uh like, like kind of half crazed inventor guy, brilliant inventor guy who's working for John Hamm, uh, who they're developing together this electric car, like a f- purely electric car called the Howard. Uh, and they have this big falling out and he's like, you know what? Fuck you. I'm going to go my own way. And then when his wife explains to him, are you an idiot? What have you done? They're like a month from production and you're going to sell, give your stock back for what you, what you eventually invested, what you originally invested in this. Are you, have you lost your mind? <laughs> so he goes back begging basically, but he's still Larry David and he can't really completely humiliate himself. He's right. like, it's like, I get, Johnny, I'm like, I get the feeling you're not being sincere. He's like, of course I'm not being sincere. Well, does anyone, when they apologize, are they ever sincere? That's not the point. The point is I apologized. <laughs> it's, it's Larry David playing Larry David. Um, yeah, not a huge stretch there. Flash to years later, and he looks like Larry David. He's cut off all the hair. He's, he's like Larry David in Curb Your Enthusiasm. And he's living on Martha's Vineyard, just going about his life. He's uh assistant to an older rich lady who just kind of – who's all grumpy, but he – 
balances her out well. Everybody loves him on this island. They're all good friends with him. Um, you know, every, everybody likes him. Uh, when uh, Danny McBride plays like his best friend, you know, who's not playing, strangely, a Danny McBride type character. Yeah, he's not playing. Um, he's actually a sweet guy here. Eva Mendez Kenny is, is uh, playing a good, a good friend of his here. Amy Ryan, J.B. Smoove is in this. Um, and things go terribly wrong when John Hamm, who has since made billions and billions of dollars from this car. I mean, they're everywhere. Even the island is just filled with the Howard, this car. It decides to build this huge unsightly manor on the island, move there with his new wife, uh, played by a now busty Kate Hudson. <laughs> oh, yeah, she got breast implants. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. So now she's got, like, yeah, remember she used to be just kind of washed. Wait, so like in the in the movie or or no Kate no Hudson in real got, life she got really? she got breast implants. Okay, yeah, and they actually look normal on her. She didn't get ridiculous ones. She got like normal sized ones. That's but. cool. You keep talking. I'm not googling that at all. <laughs> uh, anyway, so he's all he's like, I got to get out of here. I can't live on this island with her. When he ends up getting sucked into a weird and terribly formed idea, along with Michael Keaton, who's a crazy guy on the island who used to own the property which this new house has been built on and his sort of whipping boy played by bill Hader, to blow up the mansion the problem is is that he becomes convinced as he's trying to get to know kate hudson's character uh you know to basically be able to get her so she's not there when they're putting in the explosives that he really likes her and suspects that she likes him too enough that she'll leave her incredibly handsome and talented husband john ham for him yeah okay and this is kind of where the <laughs> plot goes like the wrong way because like you're already going okay he's an asshole but he's an asshole we're still kind of rooting for anyway because he did he was kind of you know deserved it or not he probably like it's a sucky situation to have been in you're like i mean he's world famous for being the guy who gave up a billion dollars which is what 10 percent of the stock that he had would have been worth like that's why he changed his whole look because he didn't want people constantly pointing and laughing at him but you get to a point where he's talking about blowing up the guy's mansion, where he's thinking, oh, I think I have a chance with Kate Hudson. You're Larry David. Look at yourself, dude. It <laughs> at gets, some point, it becomes a little too much of a suspension of disbelief. It, it just gets a little too silly. And ultimately, what you end up with is a minor episode of uh, Curb Your Enthusiasm. I mean, great cast, lots of funny parts in it. Liev Schreiber, especially in here, uh, plays this character named Tibor, who's kind of a, a Lithuanian uh, Tibor. like criminal who's in this. And he's actually really funny in this. The, Bring me my the, instruments, the band, Tibor. The band Chicago is in this movie, and there's a big running joke about how, like, uh, where Larry David finds out at one point that his ex-girlfriend blew them all when she was like in her twenties when they came through town. And now he's constantly trying to figure out a plan to figure out whether or not they actually did do this or if it's just a town rumor. <laughs> Cause that's what people like Larry David worry about. Right. I'd be proud. I'd be like, Shh, my girlfriend blew Chicago. <laughs> <laughs> it is the windy what, the city. city? <laughs> no, the band. Oh, that's all right then. Uh, yeah, it's unfortunately, like I said, it, this is really just for fans of Curb Your Enthusiasm, and ultimately it'll be a, a footnote in that, sadly. It's funny, but you're better off just watching that show. Well, fair enough. That was clear history, and now we're going to move on to My Name Is Nobody. Man, I didn't even realize when I started watching this, this was actually a comedy western, because it takes a little while before it starts being kind of a comedy. And it does it in subtle ways. It doesn't do, like, right out of the gate, it's not what you're seeing that's funny necessarily, but sort of the way that it's presented. For example, um, the, the Marauders, like the sort of background villains, all underscoring the, wild the whole bunch. movie. The Wild Bunch, yes. They are uh, 
Ennio Morricone is doing his most intentionally over-the-top score with them. Yeah, if he's doing Flight of the Valkyries done yeah. Ennio Morricone style. Yeah, but it's like almost like it's played on a kazoo. Like, it's very <laughs> strange. And it, and then when you get to the scene where Terrence Hill is in the bar and slapping the guy, then you're all, you're like, oh, yeah. this really is a comedy. And that's not till midway through the second act. Exactly. Um, because you start off with Henry Fonda, who's this older, tired legendary gunslinger who's just trying to get a ticket to go to Europe and retire because constantly young gunmen are trying to challenge him to be able to, so they can, that can be their thing. I killed the great Jack Beauregard. Yeah. He just wants nothing to do with it. It starts off with a pretty badass action scene of him kicking, you know, effortlessly killing three gunmen who've come after him for something like that. Uh, and he's a very serious guy. There's nothing about this that seems like comedy until we meet Terrence Hill, who's just known as Nobody, who totally idolizes him but doesn't want to fight him himself. He wants to manipulate events so that he – so that uh, Jack Beauregard ends up having to fight the 150-man team of the Wild Bunch who just sort of wild drive around or, or ride around the West and uh, – apparently do bad stuff. Yeah, although we never really see them doing anything bad. We just see them riding around and, and being in the background. I mean, there's a plot that has something to do with stolen gold and a fake gold mine. Yeah, none of that stuff really matters. No. It really is like the plot thing of this is almost completely pointless. The appeal here is the chemistry between Terrence Hill and Henry Fonda, which is sparkling, is wonderfully done. As Terrence Hill is just, I mean, he's a geek boy for Fonda's character, except he himself is this astonishing, incredible, almost X-Men-like talented gunfighter. Yeah. Uh, just one who has no interest in... You now, Henry Fonda, there's, the relationship's complicated because he's so used to meeting guys like this who want to fight him. He has no interest in fighting him. I mean, why would he want to do that? He loves him. He just wants to see him. He's like, look, you're old. You've got it. You can't... The, the, the gunfighters we remember are those that die. You're going to have to die sometime and you might as well pick a way to die that's like the most spectacular way imaginable. Sure. Which would be to fight the wild bunch. Now, this is often credited as a Sergio Leone film and it's, yes, he was involved. He he produced it not only that, but he also counter, sort of came up with the story that this is based on, but, but he didn't direct he it. He didn't really direct it. Apparently, there was a few select scenes he came in and sort of second AD'd on, but uh, this was done by Tonino Valeri uh, and... They were both very annoyed that this was marketed in America and almost everywhere else as a Sergio Leone film because it it was not. But it was more relevant as a comedy, I believe, when it came out because we were so much more hyper-familiar with all the Westerns that were coming out at that point. And this is filled with little references well, yeah, to and Western I, stuff. Yeah, I think what really grabbed people about this movie is you have to remember that just a few years before this, Henry Fonda played – a very nasty, ruthless scumbag in Once Upon a Time in the West, which is a Sergio Leone film. And a spectacular one. And that's a role he had never played before. Yeah. And that really stuck with people. That character stuck with people so much that there are actually a few nods to Once Upon a Time in the West. Did I say Once Upon a Time in America? Once Upon a Time in the West. There are nods to that film in this, including that opening scene that Chris was mentioning where Henry Fonda just effortlessly kills three guys. Yeah. The way that's constructed and the very slow buildup to the actual fight is quite similar to the gunfight between Woody Strode and the other bad guys versus Charles Bronson in the beginning of Once Upon a Time in the West. And there's even little little traces of the theme song that accompanied Fonda's character in Once Upon a Time in the West that make their way into this film. There's a lot of little musical in-jokes in yeah. this that reference other classic westerns. There's even more obvious stuff like there's one point where they find a gravestone and the guy's name is Sam, Sam Peckinpah. Peckinpah. Yeah. And they, they 
pointed out specifically. Look, this guy's named Sam Peckinpah. And apparently in a, in a different Leone or in a, uh, I can't remember. There was a different Clint Eastwood Western that came out later in which Sergio Leone was one of the names on oh, the tombstones. Yeah. <laughs> um, as well, uh, the reason Terrence Hills in this, because he had kind of become synonymous, uh, even an icon with the comedy Western genre, which was relatively new at that point mm-hmm. uh, with his, the big hits, they call me Trinity and the sequel Trinity is still my name. And this was sort of like, Trying to get the best of both worlds. Classic Western guy, new modern comedy Western guy, and it's kind of about the beginning of the New West, too, kind of, but it's still a very slight comedy. It's hard to take it seriously at all. It does a lot of goofy shit like speeding up the film and stuff to get comedy bits in there, which – are awkward nowadays, but hell, even Mel Brooks used to pull that. So yeah, there's actually some similarities between this and Blazing Saddles too. Like yeah. uh, Henry Fonda's character getting tired of being challenged by every young buck. It's like that's exactly what happened to Gene Wilder's character in in uh, Blazing Saddles, where he's just like. I turned around and was staring down the, the gun of an eight-year-old kid who shot me in the ass. You know? <laughs> um, so yeah, there's I what I what, what I really find interesting though, you can watch this movie. After you watch Once Upon a Time in the West and you totally see, like, the similarities, the bridges, the intentional in-jokes. Sure. But there's a film you might not think of immediately or you probably never even heard of called The Five Obstructions. I've seen it. Which is a Lars von Trier movie where he's actually – it's it's not – it's a documentary, really, where Lars von Trier is trying to get his mentor, Jorgen Leith, uh, who is contemplating suicide. And this is all, like, in real life. He tr- He gets him to remake his own film – five different ways and he's sort of pushing him towards excellence and self-discovery through this sort of grand send-off and as i'm watching my name is nobody i'm like it's really strange to me how there's a similar relationship going on between terrence hill and henry fonda where it's like you have this this uh this guy who idolizes him who's really pushing who this guy he considers to be his mentor to have this grand send-off and I never in my life thought I would think about The Five Obstructions again, especially when watching a Western from the early 70s. I was going to say, I was but, quite surprised that we went to Lars von Trier's The Five Obstructions I didn't, in this review. I, as the whole time I'm watching it, I'm like, huh, is it going to? Yeah, I kind of can't stop thinking about The Five Obstructions when it comes to My Name is Nobody. Now I'm thinking about Charlotte's Gainsborough and Charlotte Gainsborough naked, so we should probably move on. Yeah, that's probably a good idea. <laughs> but this is a uh, this is an I think this is the first time this has ever been on Blu-ray, correct? I believe so. And unfortunately, it's largely fe- extra featureless um, oh. as you might expect. You know, the nice thing to do for this would have been to include the considerably lesser sequel, A Genius, Two Partners and a Dupe on here, perhaps as like an extra feature. Fuck it, just do like a smaller quality version cuz it's not that good a movie, but it would have been fun to have this in it. I mean, you're not going to sell it separately. There's no way. Right. Like on Blu-ray. So fuck it. Put it as the bonus feature on here. Terrence Hill continuing the story afterwards in not as good a fashion. But yeah, there's there's not a lot. In fact, there's no extras here. That's really sad. Yeah. The last time this came out was in 2005 on DVD and it was also featureless. And it seems like it's a thing that, yeah, there would be there would be some interesting stuff to say here, but it's still, it's one of those things. It's a comedy Western, but it's one that still got a lot of the stuff you, you really love from great Westerns. And it's very funny in its own right at points. And I do really recommend it. Right on. Well, from there, we're going to talk about deceptive practice, the mysteries and mentors of Ricky J. Now, if you don't know who Ricky J is, I do not. I, you do though. Again, I do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You totally know. Oh, yes, of course. Look at his picture. He's an American stage magician, actor, and writer. If you've ever seen a David Mamet film, you've seen Ricky J. He's best friends with David Mamet. David Mamet, of course, also ended up uh, directing his, uh, his, uh, at least his most recent, uh, stage, uh, appearance, which was 
basically where he, he interacts with the audience and does magic, but is explaining sort of the history of magic as he's doing it. Now, Ricky Jay is a phenomenal magician, but he's focused on card tricks, which sounds weird in today's world, but wow, he's like the best there is. He so he's does, doing mostly close-up magic. Yeah, then. he's doing, okay. it's all close-up magic that he's doing, and okay. he's so good at it, but he's also just a terrific storyteller. I mean, he's, and this whole thing is him looking at not just how he does magic, but him telling his own story of how he got started with doing this, who the people were he grew up with, magicians you've never heard of and probably never will hear of again after this, unless you yourself are a magician and follow such things. Uh, but like, you know, rare footage of these guys doing stuff. You, I've never seen anything like it before. And if I have a, a, a bone to pick with this movie, it's only that Ricky Jay has almost become synonymous with the grift, the con and telling stories about the con. I mean, he's written stuff about the con and the history of the con. There's really nothing about that in here. And I was a little disappointed because I hmm. find the whole history of the con fascinating. Sure. Movies like the grifters and stuff like that. I'm like, Oh man, absolutely fascinating stuff. Um, yeah, there's none of that in, in this film at all. It's all about card tricks, but nonetheless, it's going to grab you. It's, it, you know, there's, unless you despise magic, it's, <laughs> which there are those people who do. I sure. think you're going to find this actually quite interesting anyway. Ricky Jay, like I said, he's so charismatic. He's so likable. Uh, and yet, like you talk to people around him who are like, Ricky is a great guy as far as I can tell. But there's <laughs> nothing that happens in Ricky's life that he has not planned every angle of it ahead of time. Like if you ever go meet him in a restaurant, his back is already against the wall. Strange. You know, he's one of those guys you know that everything he does. And there's this one story somebody tells about how, like, they were – he was going to be part of this big show and they were very upset because they wanted him to do this one big trick that this magician used to do years ago and that he – when they asked, he had no idea how it was even done. And so he pulled this huge elaborate, like, setup for this woman uh, where they were going to go out to dinner – and like they got stuck in traffic for an hour and went the wrong way. I mean, there were hours in the middle of the summer in L.A., went to this shitty restaurant, big open windows, no shade. And the trick involved literally like pulling up his, his paper and there's like a giant head-sized block of ice on the table, completely unmelted, real wow. ice. And she just broke down crying the moment it happened, and he panicked. He's like, oh my God, what happened? She's like, I'm sorry. It's just my reality just shattered. <laughs> and she, like, looked under the table, and she's like, to this day, I have no idea. I mean, it was the middle of the summer. Like, there was no waiter had come to the table. No, where the fuck did that block ice? I mean, it started melting less than a minute after she pulled the menu away. Where the fuck was he keeping it? <laughs> <laughs> Nice. Uh, there's lots of good stuff like that in here. And if you like that sort of thing, I, I really do recommend this. Ricky Jay's a fascinating guy. I mean, you could make another documentary about other facets of this guy's life. He's so interesting. Um, I, and lots of, you know, interesting people being interested in uh, interviewing here, including David Mamet. Well worth a look. Well, it's funny. I, I just remembered Ricky Jay in October was here in Austin at the Alamo with this documentary. Oh, I didn't realize and that. And they programmed an entire series of films about magic, including the prestige in which he apparently has a cameo oh he's been in a lot of movies oh yeah i mean i actually remember him most oddly enough from tomorrow never dies because i watched bond films a lot as a kid and um and he was he was a character in that one but they also showed uh at the draft house as part of this series the mad magician starring vincent price 
So I thought that was. Funny. I still remember him from the X Files episode uh, in the seventh season, the Amazing Malini, which is actually a really good later episode, later season episode where he does some really elaborate like con oriented tricks. It's really really funny. He's great in it. But yeah, I mean, like obviously he's in a lot of David Mamet films, but yeah, Tomorrow Never Dies, Magnolia. Oh yeah, he's yeah he Mystery he gets, Men. Yeah, you'll definitely see him in more than a couple uh, P.T. Anderson films. The Illusionist. Why he wasn't in uh, Now You See Me seems to be kind of a mystery in and of itself. He's in, yeah, he's the only guy that that's in both the prestige and uh the illusionist and, the illusionist. and should be in now you see me you i know, absolutely why agree with somebody that. fucked up not getting Ricky <laughs> in that movie. somebody didn't do their casting homework correctly well from there we're gonna talk about francis huh francis huh i don't know is that how you say Fra- it i don't francis, know huh? francis ha huh. well it's funny even in the context of the film it's not her name I mean, her name is francis but ha is like a little kind of tiny little end butt joke right at the very very tail end of this film that I guess you could look at as as you could look at as vague as symbolic, but not necessarily. It's just really more of a one-off joke than anything. Um, this is a Noah Baumbach film. I'm actually kind of a fan of Baumbach, mainly from The Squid and the Whale, which I still think is a spectacular film. I saw that while I was still working at a blockbuster in college, but I remember liking it very much. Uh, Margot at the Wedding is also a really great film that he did as well with, uh, uh, let's see, that was the one with Nicole Kidman and Jennifer Jason Lee. Uh, and then, uh, Greenberg, not as big a fan of that, but still pretty good. Francis Ha is probably now my favorite film by him, actually. Uh, and it's, it's getting a lot of notice this year, but as much as I want to recommend it to everyone, it's not a movie for Just everyone. can't because, it's Greta, Greta Gerwig playing a character that's so flighty. She's so, I mean, this is, don't get me wrong. She's a Manic Pixie Dream Girl, but it's a deconstruction film about the Manic Pixie Dream Girl. It's watching what happens if you really live your life that carefree and that sort of like, ah, mm. it's kind of stumbly. In real life, eventually you're just It's, it's the uglier side of being that type of, yeah. <laughs> you're just a mess. And she's a 27-year-old dancer who lives with her best friend, Sophie, played by Mickey Sum- Sumner. And they're people, they do, they're those girls who do everything together. They yeah. finish each other's thoughts like an old married couple. But, of course, what happens in those situations, eventually one, one of them gets a boyfriend. Gets a boyfriend yeah. and things turn ugly. And that's exactly what starts to happen as Greta Gerwig, Francis, is forced to go on and live in a series of different places and try and go on with her life because she's just been kind of coasting based on this sort of codependent relationship she's been in with this other girl uh, and things, you know, kind of disintegrate for her. Mm-hmm. Um, it's actually a very funny film, but in a dark sort of way. And yeah. it's less funny as it goes along. Yeah. I mean, I actually didn't expect to like, I mean, this movie started off as exactly the type of film that I do not get into at all. But what pulled me into it and what kept me interested was Greta Gerwig and her performance. Yeah, and, such a good actress. And just, yeah, it was, it, I found myself identifying with this person that I never thought I would, largely because they're a mess. Largely because every decision they make, like, you can understand the motivations, but you also understand them enough to know that it's the wrong decision yeah. 99% of the time. Yeah. But they're the kind of wrong decisions that you have found yourself making. Not the kind of thing where, like, in a horror movie, like, don't go up there, don't go in there. It's like, no, these are bad decisions that you've totally made in your life. Yeah, and you can see how someone like her and someone in her position is yeah. finds herself on this downward spiral and is like, how did I get here? When you're surrounded by people that do nothing all the time but talk about all the amazing places they've traveled to, eventually you're going to go, well, I'm going to go on a trip, and you're not going to plan it correctly, and it's going to, and I, that's probably my favorite 
sequence in the whole movie is that she just gets tired of being surrounded by people <laughs> who have it more together than she does, who are in a better place than she is, always talking about these great places they've been to, to where she just goes, I'm going to France for a weekend, which is something a flighty person, a manic pixie dream girl would do. But I like that they show how miserable she is when she gets there because she only goes for two days and doesn't really – have any kind of agenda whatsoever. The problem is most of these people that she hangs out with, they're all people who have, they have like, you know, uh, they have rich parents. Exactly. Or they have some sort of backup plan. Like they were already wealthy when they decided to just say, fuck it and live a bohemian lifestyle. Mm -hmm. She doesn't have a backup plan. She doesn't have rich parents. Yeah. She doesn't really know what, what happens when what you've always counted on, which in this case is both her relationship with her friend and continuing to live with her and her future as a dancer, which she's kind of taken for granted over the years. What happens when all that just falls through? Yeah, what I like do you that do they that? take. I like that they take a lot of the romance out of the Bohemian lifestyle. There's a great line in the movie where uh, one of her roommates at one point says, "Only rich people can afford to be artists in New York," and I just thought that was so like such a sh like a dagger in the heart of the like free willing starving artist Bohemian New York lifestyle. It's like no, only rich people can really afford to be artists in New York. I, and you. Still, like you said, the biggest the biggest plus here is that despite the fact that she she is making she's responsible for her own mistakes here. This isn't life fucking her in the ass. This no. is just hey, you didn't plan. What can mm -hmm. I tell you? You still like her all the way through this. And that's I think gonna be the dividing point for some people. Is some people are just gonna be irritated by this type of character. Just gonna be like, Oh, it drives me crazy that she made make keeps making these mistakes. You're like going, Yeah, but she's not dumb. No. She's just in a, she's never had to really figure anything out for herself. Everything's just kind of come to her. And now suddenly that, that stopped. All her protections have gone away. So how do you deal with real life all of a sudden? And yeah. it's, a, it's a journey. It's a discovery. And it's not really even a plot. It's a slice of life. It's a character study. It's helped a lot. One character I liked in here was Adam Driver, who's from the show Girls, who's a miswritten character on there, but he's good in it. Mm -hmm. Here, he's actually a much more likable character. I actually enjoyed him quite a bit in this. Uh, he's actually going to be in the new Mia Wasikowska film as well about her, where she's taking a long walk across the desert. Apparently, he's one of the guys they're trying to build up into a big actor. And I'm not surprised. He's quite good. But overall, likable cast. Lots of people, you're like, wait, where do I know that person from? Uh, all filmed in black and white with beautiful cinematography. I really do think this is, it's right up there with Squid and the Whale from Bombach, one of his best films. I think the point where it's going to lose people or attract people is the buying into that codependent relationship between her and her friend. Yeah. Because I have known people who have that kind of codependent relationship with... Uh, Luke! <laughs> yeah, <laughs> to a certain degree. <laughs> But uh, but it's like I I I totally get it, and I've seen people who have I've had friends in college who, uh, once they they moved away from the person they spent four years with, were just baffled. Yeah, it's no like they they life. couldn't get their life together, and it wasn't it wasn't a romantic thing. It's like they're straight people, but they become dependent on each other yeah. to make life work. Yeah, and I felt like I bought that immediately from the beginning. So I never spent the rest of the movie going, "What does it matter? Just get your shit together." It's like, yeah. no, I I get it. Yeah, you had the opposite like thing. You did the smart thing. You're like, instead of like casting Luke out on his own when you got married, you were like, "Come live with us and be part of our story." Yeah, Luke and I went to the <laughs> same college, but we didn't live together until we decided like, let's all move to Austin. And it was because it was such a weird, you know, kind of experiment that we were like. We don't know anybody in this town. Let's see if we can make it work. And Here's a story of a lovely lady who's more patient than an <laughs> army of regular women. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> My wife is, has got the patience of a saint. That is that is absolutely true. Uh, this is a Criterion release, which means it looks great. Which is, I'm sorry, that always baffles me. Like, I have nothing <laughs> against Criterion. I think this is exactly the kind of film that they, that would go after, but... 
it always blows my mind when we see a new movie released yeah. in the Criterion Collection that isn't Wes Anderson. Doesn't yeah, other than Wes Anderson, it doesn't happen that often. But this is one of those ones I assume they just went, hey, we know we're gonna put this out eventually anyway. Let's just go ahead and like cut to the chase. Well, it has tinges of both French New Wave and Woody Allen in it at points. Yeah. So I'm like, I guess I can further understand why like Criterion yeah. to be salivating. For I mean, it. you can totally see how Woody Allen was a huge influence. I'm not a big fan of the French New Wave, generally speaking. Me neither. And yet, this is better than most of the films that I'm supposed to like. That, that was the <laughs> point where it, it worried me the most when I started noticing the similarities. I'm like, oh my God, don't do this. Yeah. Please don't be a total French New Wave film. But it is interesting to note that Criterion also put out Bombach's first film, Kicking and Screaming. Ah, so. which I, I don't know if I've actually seen or not. I have not seen I it. I can't remember if I have a... Isn't Ben Stiller in that? Uh, I'm not entirely sure. I do know that it was his first film and that Criterion has a release of it. And I only know that because Luke owns it. And <laughs> neither one of us does. have seen it because that's what no, Luke does. No, it's Eric Stoltz, Al- oh. uh, Olivia Diabo, Parker Posey, Josh Hamilton, Elliot Gould, Catherine Kellner... And Jonathan. Eric Stoltz is, is actually only in it for a little bit, and then he's replaced by Michael J. Fox. No, oh, we're going to keep <laughs> going back to that one. Yeah. We're going to mine that one as long as we can. I love it. But of course, being Criterion comes with a nice little booklet. There's a conversation between the director, uh, uh, Noah Bombach, and another director, Peter Bogdanovich, who was the co writer oh, on this, apparently. Um, and uh, then there's an interview between Greta Gerwig and Sarah Poli, two modern actresses who actually have a lot in common together. She also was involved with the writing of this film and contributed quite a bit to creating it. A uh, video piece with uh, Bombach, director of photography, Sam Levy, and the colorist, Pascal Dangan, discuss the look of it, which is definitely worth talking about. It's a beautiful-looking film. So overall, this is a great, great Criterion piece and I think like I said give it a chance it may not sound like your type of movie but you might find yourself because it didn't sound like my type of movie no certainly hell didn't sound like my type of movie but I found it very appealing and I ended up at the end walking away with a smile on my face indeed and uh, insider tip Anytime you have the chance to listen to Peter Bogdanovich tell a story, yeah, do you it. listen to that story. Well, that man likes to talk. Yeah. And he's got a he's got a wealth of great I can't stories. believe he's even a director. You're like, dude, you don't even want to direct movies. All you really want to do is talk about other movies. Yeah. Because like like I think every special feature that's ever been made has Peter Bogdanovich in some point of it going, Well, really the story here goes back to a little conversation I had with Robert De Niro in nineteen seventy two. He's like a he's like a slightly more G rated version of Robert Evans. Just Pretty a much. guy who is just got mountains and mountains of stories. Not that anyone's ever said the word G rated in Robert Evans in the same sentence. No, I think I may be the first one. <laughs> well moving on from there, I'm gonna let Chris talk about a movie that I should have by all rights watched, but cannot bring myself to do it. And that is Blackfish. Because you're very sensitive with the harming of animals. I really am. And I, I know it's, it's – I don't know if I would – I don't know if it's a flaw necessarily, but it is a weakness of mine. And I fully and completely acknowledge that. Well, I, I will say like I'm one of those people who gets furious with people who are like part of PETA or whatever. PETA, PETA, I don't know how you're supposed to say it. I think but, it's PETA. Uh, who post like the images on Facebook of oh, some grizzly animal thing. You're like going, you're not making me want to help your organization. You're making me want to punch you in the face. Yeah. Okay? Stop that shit. Yes, please stop. <laughs> Uh, fortunately, Blackfish, this movie about the mistreatment treatment of killer whales by SeaWorld, more specifically than anybody else, doesn't feature much in the way of goriness or, like, showing a lot of this abuse. It's more telling. But that being said, 
you're going to come out pretty traumatized by it anyway. I know I did. Um, I'm glad I only went to SeaWorld once and I was too young to make the decision for myself even when I went did go. I'll mm-hmm. tell you this. I'm never going back to another one of these parks. That's for goddamn sure. Never Just been to one. The beginning of finding out how when they first got started, how they collected these creatures, which is horrifying what they do. I mean, just like, oh, my God. Like, I don't even want to say it out loud. They're actually yeah, interviewing a- one of the people who was involved who just starts breaking down in the middle of telling the stories. Like, it changed my life, changed every way I looked at life. And I've done a lot of things that were fucked up in my life, but nothing ever was as bad as that. Like, wow. <laughs> <laughs> oh, this is the guy who toured with rock stars, so you know he saw some bad shit. Um He's like, fuck it, I was in Vietnam. Fuck it, I was Vietnam. Fuck it, I killed everyone. That wasn't as bad as what we did to these killer whales. <laughs> but this mainly focuses on one kill- huge-ass killer whale named uh, uh, Tilikum, who got moved from park to park even after they knew he had a tendency to attack his trainers. Because it's all about the almighty dollar now, isn't it? And this is as true for SeaWorld as it is for almost any other thing that you're going to make a documentary about and get very upset about, which there's, I think at one point there'll be a documentary about us with like, you know, freeze frame on Brian at this point, you can see the sadness in his eyes, but not hear it through his voice. I was that good of an actor that you would never guess what Chris was doing to him behind the scenes. I'm sorry. I hope we get rich enough to be the bad guy in a documentary at some point. (laughs) I am fine with that, man. If money is the root of all evil, I could use a little more evil in my pocket. (laughs) Uh, But this, when this starts, it talks about kind of like how, uh, there's one person who got killed by this whale. But as it goes along, you realize, okay, that's the person who got killed by this whale. Jeez. Here's this giant list of people who were maimed and almost killed by the same fucking whale that they kept in the parks doing these fucking stunts and shit. And this is a big, this is Orca, the movie-sized killer whale. I mean, it was huge. And the main reason they were keeping it there is because its sperm was worth so much for breeding. In fact, at one point it says something like 60% of all killer whales in captivity are directly related to this whale that has problems with killing people. Jesus. (laughs) It's like that whole Genghis Khan and you can still find a lot of his descendants in Asia because he raped so many women. Uh, It's... It's a really frightening film. There's so many horror. If you ever see a, 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 a go to one of these shows and you see a killer whale that its top fin is like kind of bent over, that only happens to killer whales in captivity. Right. Yeah. Yeah. They mention that in Free Willy, but just as a cutesy, like, I don't know, it just kind of happens in captivity. You're like, yeah, it's apparently not considered to be cutesy. It's considered to be kind of pathetic. Yeah. There's so much sad, haunting stuff in this movie. Like I said, fortunately, not visually graphic, but you're going to come out of this either really mad, really sad, or some combination of the two. It's an extremely well-made documentary about something that, you know, everybody should be exposed to to some degree if you're not already somebody who's like, I'm not going to give my money to those fucking people. Make no mistake, these guys who run these parks are a bunch of money-hungry douchebags. Uh, according to this documentary, and it seems pretty convincing to me, you should not go to any SeaWorld or any of them. You know, let them fucking go out in the wild. Do you really think that, like, Killer whales, giant-ass killer whales, dolphins, the walruses. Like, they enjoy being in a swimming pool-sized, like, environment their entire lives. No, of course they don't. Fuck that shit. Fuck that shit. Yeah. I can't I can't do it, man. I think it was because I heard – I haven't even seen the movie, but I think it's because I heard about scenes from the movie The Cove. Yeah. And just hearing people describe things that happened in The <laughs> Cove, I was like, I am totally behind and support – you know, what documentaries you like this, getting the message out there. It's obviously stories that need to be told. Yeah. I just can't bring myself to look at those images uh, because it will ruin I, my month. I know what you're saying. 
Uh, this is, like I said, is an extremely well-made documentary, though. Lots of bonus features on this, filling in even more of the story, if you can stand to watch even more heartbreaking stuff after you've seen this movie. But, yeah. Uh, <laughs> Here's more depression for you. Yeah. Ugh. Anywho, let's move on to Ipman, The Final Fight. I mean, there's been a lot of talk of Ip Man lately, of course, with not only Donnie Yen's two Ip Man films that are absolutely spectacular, just called Ip Man and Ip Man 2, which are very much more focused on the incredibly badass martial arts sequences. But just this year, The Grandmaster, the Wong Kar Wai film, which focuses more on the story and more on the sort of intricacies of movement. It really yeah. gets into it's, a It focuses on being really arty. Yeah, but I, I loved it myself. I thought it was wonderful. I couldn't get into I'm it. I'm guessing by Brian, yeah. That, I, and I love the Ip Man movies, and I like Wong Kar Wai a lot, but it was just... I don't know. I felt not that that's what we're reviewing right now, but yeah. uh, what we are reviewing is Ip Man: The Final Fight, which actually focuses on a lot of the period of time in Ip Man's life, the later period. You know, this goes all the way to his death. It starts from middle age, goes towards his death uh, when he, when right when he moved to Hong Kong, which the Grandmaster also covers. Uh, except this case, you've got Anthony Wong, which is an odd choice to play one of the greatest martial artists ever because Anthony Wong is, is although he certainly is very capable physically in that way he's never really been as known for his martial arts st status as he is as an actor and he's an exceptional actor and in that way he manages to accomplish getting this making this role emotionally connectable quite well in fact better arguably than Donnie Yen does uh it's just that when you actually watch him fighting as good as he is he ain't no Donnie Yen. <laughs> it doesn't have the same impressive, if you will, punch as Donnie Yen doing. Uh, apparently, interestingly, he said in an interview with a Singapore paper that he was drunk when he was called to ask if he would like to play him in the movie and said yes. And then was like, oh, fuck, what did I do later? But then when he saw the script, he's like, oh, this is actually pretty good. Huh. Uh, so decided, okay, fine. I'm not going to make a big deal. I'm actually going to do this. And what they end up with is a film that's arguably the least of the Ip Man, major Ip Man films have come out so far, but one that as, as it builds gets better and better and turns into quite the emotionally affecting story as, as it focuses a lot more on the drama in his life, the death of his wife, how that affected him, troubles with his students, some of which kind of abandoned him, troubles with the Kowloon walled city, which had sort of become a whole area. Now it's all skyscrapers, but in Hong Kong at the, up until just recently, really, it was this huge like place that the police did not go inside of. Oh wow! <laughs> you know, it was like no, no. I mean, like one of the last things I ever filmed there was Jackie Chan's crime story, where they knew they were going to blow it up anyway, so they just let him blow it up for the movie. Ah, nice. <laughs> you know, so yeah. watch that if you want to see a real historic blowing up of Kowloon just done in the midst of a a, a violent Jackie Chan movie. Um, there's a lot of good stuff in here, and it's. Only in the third act that it really starts getting into the martial arts. But when it does, they're more old school style where the camera doesn't just pull away. It's not a lot of editing tricks. You can see that these people really know what they're doing. And some, there's like huge crowd fights. Like there's one fight inside the Kowloon Walled City where he has to go in and get one of his students who's trapped in there inside of like a fighting ring. That's pretty freaking amazing. You know, wow. it's Ip Man and, and like six students versus everyone. This <laughs> <laughs> is everyone. Uh, so it ends up being a lot of fun. It just, struggles a bit along the way. Ultimately, I did enjoy the hell out of this movie. Like I said, I can see why, like, whereas the Grandmaster is the very arty. It's very strong in that way. It's very strong in the way that it depicts the history of martial arts, but in a visual sense. I mean, it has its thing. And Ip Man is about just flat-out badass fighting, like incredible Donnie Yen being the ultimate badass, sure. which he totally is. This is kind of trapped between like wanting to tell a more dramatic story and wanting to be a martial arts film, and it never totally decides which it wants to be. So it's uneven, but still a damn good film. 
I, I do recommend this, but this is probably the last one you're going to watch out of that se- a series of Ip Man films. At least sequentially. Yes. <laughs> but it's called The Final Fight. So one would expect. Yes. Well, our final title of the evening is Animals, which I assume is not the album Animals. No, it's not the okay. al- album Animals. Uh, this is actually... I didn't. It, I was so glad to read this when I when I was reading a review of this because I was like, this is reminding me a lot of Donnie Darko, but not in a sort of like direct way. So mm-hmm. like, if somebody wanted to make like if Donnie Darko, they're like, that movie's just too accessible. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously, but not even which has been said by no one. <laughs> uh, this story here uh, follows seventeen year old high school kid named Paul who is refusing to grow up. And part of his problem is that he is followed around by his pet teddy bear that speaks sort of like in a weird, like, computer-synthesized type voice, it sounds like. Maybe it was, maybe it wasn't, but it kind of sounded like that to okay. me. Okay, what uh, the fuck? That he plays the drums in his band and everything when they practice. And he's not real. That's established early on. He's not real. It's just in his imagination. But it's kind of ruining his life. He's having trouble connecting with other kids. Uh, there's this... Uh, his relationship with Mila Kunis is on the rocks <laughs> because of it. There's this very very hot girl in the school who clearly just wants to mm-hmm, and he just is totally oblivious to this completely oh. there's lots of complicated kids in this having their own problems and he's got his own problems and as it goes along it becomes clear part of it is that he's kind of confused sexually he doesn't know if he likes men boys or girls uh and that or plays, bears or bears right yeah it's like if you ever fuck a bear you'll never go back i'll tell you that much <laughs> <laughs> it also reminded me a lot of Gus Van Sant's Elephant at points, which I was not a big fan of, but in that way that it builds up the sort of a tragedy that that seems inevitable, mm-hmm. you know, that you know it's heading towards a tragedy. You just don't know how it's going to get there following these students, disaffected students getting there. There's a lot of really incredible indie rock in this that bands I've never even heard of, but I was like, wow, this is a terrific fucking soundtrack. Pink Floyd. <laughs> no. Still no Pink Floyd animals? No, still no okay. Pink Floyd in this. Um and it's gonna, it might very well lose you at points. I wasn't entirely clear with some of the surrealism was happening, but it never made me like come out of the movie completely. Uh, a lot of that is just, it's so well filmed and the, the, the I liked the Donnie Darko-ness of it. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of themes that you'll find that it goes to. And it, you can, like I said, part of it is that it's like also feels like it's heading towards an apocalypse and a sacrifice will have to be made. Okay. But nonetheless stands completely on its own it's not going to be for that exact same crowd to be sure this is way more arty way more of a slow burn of a film uh this is a spanish movie with a lot of english dialogue in fact martin freeman plays a supporting character yeah, i thought i saw this. his name in the cast so. yeah which is huh. odd no like he's like why are you in this i don't know uh, <laughs> <laughs> um but i think overall like if if you like little weird arty but kind of like emotional feelings you films you can still connect with emotionally i think you're really gonna like this i i did by the end because you're like as you're watching along the way you're like not sure how you feel about it you're Mm -hmm. like i'm not gonna stop watching this but i don't know how i think what i'm thinking yet and by the end i was like i think i really like that nice yeah it's it's very strange but not in the way that it loses you completely and it's one of the movies i could see myself going back to a year from now and rewatching again with a different viewpoint all right. Well, that brings us to the end of the show, except that I feel like we're missing something. What are we missing? Something... Well, Luke's not here, no, so is that what you're it. thinking? There's something we usually do at the end of every show. We squeeze the cat till he meows? No, he does that on his... Oh, wait, that's right. It's the giveaway! See, I knew what it was the whole time. Nah, I was just fucking with you. Nah, you with your ruse. 
So, yes, we do once again have a giveaway for you. And this week it is <coughs> Impractical Jokers, the complete first season. Now, this is a series on True TV that I've actually seen a couple episodes. And it's kind of like if you made Candid Camera into a competition show. Oh. Where you have these four friends uh, who are uh, these, these funny guys who they issue challenges to each other to see if they can get strangers to do or say certain things in a very Candid Camera environment. Hmm. And if they fail then the other friends concoct a really horrible sort of punishment for them. Like, one of them was a guy had to play dodgeball against a professional dodgeball team with, like, one hand tied behind his back and only use of, like, they covered up one eye. And Jesus. And they just, like, pelted him, obviously. So it's kind of like, it's actually probably a better uh, explanation would be, like, Candid Camera if it was run by the guys from the league. Because <laughs> they're just horrible to each other, but it's actually kind of funny to watch. Uh, and we have the entire first season, which does include uh, deleted scenes, behind the scenes... Uh, it's up, I think it says like there's hours of extras on this, and there's even commentary for five of the episodes, which is not something you expect from what is essentially a game show. But but the real question is, what hoops will they have to jump through to win this? <laughs> I'm glad you asked. Well, as you know, we have been moving toward a sort of creative writing prompt on here, and I'm going to stick with the Twitter thing we did last week, because that actually worked pretty well. So you're going to want to make sure you're following at uh, one of us net on Twitter. Uh, we'll probably move it to the digital noise account eventually, but I want to stick with this for now and see how we do. So follow at one of us net on Twitter, and then I want you to tweet at us what is the most diabolical um, sort of practical joke that you could think to uh, play upon one of your friends. Now... The caveat here is it can't kill them because I yeah. think that's too easy. Or or physically maim them. Like you you maybe you could get arrested for it, but you wouldn't like go to jail. Probably. Right. Yeah. Yeah, because I think that's more of a challenge. If you just say I hit him in the head with a hammer till he was dead, it's like, well, old boy that's, did it. Yeah, that's not a practical joke. That's murder. <laughs> <laughs> like, sure, they're surprised. Yeah. <laughs> so yes, follow at one of us net on Twitter. Tweeted us uh, the diabolical practical joke that you would come up with for one of your friends that doesn't kill or maim them. And uh, we'll pick our favorite one, and that person will contact you via direct message on Twitter, and you will win a uh, copy of the first season of Impractical Jokers from True TV. Yeah, no date rape either. Yeah, no, let's stay. <laughs> like, it, oh, I totally drugged my, my, my roommate's girlfriend and had sex with her. No, that's yeah, not that's it's not, not, it's not yeah. as funny as you might think. Let's go with, like I said, once again, things you would not actually go to jail for. <laughs> that's what we're aiming for here. But yeah, yeah that's going to bring us to the end of another episode, and... As as we mentioned before, this is December now, so you should be expecting some gift guide shows and some, you know... There's giftiness on the way. We're going to talk a lot about shit to buy in December, I guess is what I'm trying yeah, to say. We're going to take a look back at the year and say, what was the best? I still can't tell you what week it'll be yet, but it's coming. It is coming, Shortly. definitely. Maybe next week, maybe the week after, I don't know. Who knows? Maybe even a completely extra episode. Yeah, we might just do that. We're We're rebels, man. Don't try to put us in a box. We'll surprise you every time. That's true. I'll, <laughs> I'll day rape your girlfriend. Yeah, see, that's, see, as, like we were saying, this is not quite as funny as we would like it to be. Well, it was funny at the time. <laughs> well, that's going to do it for this week. Remember to uh, follow the show on Twitter at DigiNoiseCast. You can also follow us individually. I am at Guy Salisbury. I'm at Chris Cox Critic. And, Ugh, I can't speak. And the, the fallen one is at LD Mullen. And, uh, yeah, you can also follow us on Facebook. You can like our page, which is Facebook.com. Slash one of us. Damn still? it! Seriously, still. Uh, I had it earlier. I said it right earlier, and then I forgot because it's been a long show, and I am very it's tired. Digital noise. One of us. Facebook.com/slash/digitalnoise. One of us. Ha <laughs> ha. Yes. Okay. Well, that's gonna do it for this show. And until next week, remember: if you kiss a girl under the mistletoe, 
don't do that. That's a very old, outdated custom. I don't know. You don't. She might be allergic to mistletoe. Yeah, like why would you? Why would you bring plants into your making out? Like, like if she screams, it's not Christmassy. It's like you never saw a day of the Triffids. 